0: Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, November six one O nine three seven is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Rev. Good morning. Got ourselves a night game. I see against that. Kentucky. Did hmm. you know that, Josh? I'm sure you were waiting, <laughs> waiting with bated breath. The the Gamecock and Tiger. Well, I mean, the Gamecock and Tiger faithful find out normally. uh What is it? The 13 day notice, 12 uh, day notice. um you find out yesterday, which was Monday, what time you play not this Saturday, but the following Saturday. Now, there are rare moments, Josh, that they put a six day hold on a game. But that's not common. The common routine is somewhere around twelve thirty or one on Monday, you find out when your team plays, not the next Saturday, but thirteen days, twelve days, twelve days um later. And the Gamecock faithful believe that they have a better chance to beat teams if it's a night game in Williams-Bryce uh, than a noon kick. And you would imagine the reason why, Josh, people have a day to get lathered up, as Prepare. they like to say in Baton Rouge. You had to get uh, prepared for the game. Now they may be dozing off of the second half, but the first half is always quite an
1: energetic affair. And for me, that night experience and the lights and the sound and I mean, it just and 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 for an opponent coming into to in this case Williams Bryce, it gives you an advantage
0: to me. Well, yeah, it does, except when you're
1: right it. Yeah, very. good. Yeah. you need um, every advantage you can get in that. It case. seemed
0: to be a better advantage when Marcus Lattimore was running and Jadavian Clowney was chasing quarterbacks. Yeah. Um. You know, lots be damned if, <laughs> if that's the case. It comes down to Jimmys and Joes. <laughs> Most of of the top and, got, and Clemson, by
1: it. the way, plays at three thirty that day. They've got North Carolina as their opponent. Yeah, so that'll be a good FY. tailgating
0: Saturday. I mean, yep. that that'll be. And I've got to get you a piece of equipment. Rez for me with this. I've got this. Um, my son and I have this constant battle about everything's not okay. That light is flashing. <laughs> Everything is not okay. And Res more electronically minded and technologically advanced than he or I. And um, so so when the light starts flashing. I get real paranoid about we're running out of power. We're going to run out of power. We bought this gizmo from my Schofields and it's, um, it, it doesn't burn fuel. So it doesn't make noise. And it's some sort of, you plug it up and it stores energy and it runs for seven or eight or nine or 10 hours, depending on how much current you're pulling. And, um, and my son's all, everything's fine. I said, that's not fine. So the lights flashing, I mean, the green light wouldn't be orange and flashing, <laughs> If it's, uh, if everything it's was trying okay. to tell you something, but, probably. but just being younger, he's like, all right, everything's good. Don't worry about it. And then nothing works <laughs> and everybody's uh, <laughs> concerned and upset. So I'm going to try to get rev to, um, to do a thorough examination okay. of the, uh, the I'll, gizmo I'll, I'll, that I'll we read have. the
1: manual and let you know what it says.
0: Cause you admit it's pretty
1: nice. Oh gosh. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's, it's real yeah. nice. I mean, yeah.
0: it's, it's you, you put these bi- power battery packs yep. and it, it's like a spaceship almost, but it provides a good bit of power. And uh, you got the television going, pulling for the Tar Heels. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's almost like, is there a game, is there a team out there? This would be an interesting question for the bad boy. Is there a team out there? I mean, we're heading toward rivalry week. I mean, a couple of three weeks from now, we'll be talking about Gamecocks and Tigers playing against one another. Is there a team that you really have an almost neutral view of Clemson when they play? Or same with South Carolina. I mean, is there a team that you – I mean, it's natural to pull against your rivalry. I mean, I I put a a Facebook post up years ago. I would be a moron to pull for my rival because every time my rival does better, it has a natural, you know, um, negative effect on my program. It's just – I mean, it's not a – it is a zero-sum rivalry. So so, if Clemson wins a national championship, they won a couple of them suck for Gamecock fans. But, but that naturally has a negative effect or impact on your, I mean, I, I get it. Hey, man, I'm kind of sort of a fan. I love the state, and I want both to do well. Fair enough. But if you're a, a true fan, you got to pull against your rival. I didn't say hate. I didn't say key cars or hit somebody in the head with a bottle. I mean, that's craziness. That's nonsense. And I've had a little bit of that at my tailgate. And I dispense to those people rather rapidly, Josh. (laughs) Move along, my good friend. We're not having that here. Um, But is there a team out there in in Clemson world that you find yourself not pulling against South Carolina as much if they're playing? Because that's the team for me, North Carolina. I mean, if the Tigers are playing North Carolina, especially in basketball, I mean, if I catch a game and it's Clemson, North Carolina – I, I'm less of a—I don't say tiger hater. I mean that because I just told you I ain't into hate. I'm less—I'm uh, less inclined to be pulling against Clemson as hard as I am if they're playing, you know, Wofford or or Virginia or uh, uh, certainly an SEC school in a bowl game, or they play Georgia and some other teams. Is there a team out there in um in Clemson world that you find yourself being a bit neutral if they're playing the game? So I've heard some Clemson fans tell me. That when you guys play Tennessee, I, I'm a little bit take it or leave it. You know what I mean. I'm normally pulling against South Carolina, but if I turn it on and you guys are playing Tennessee, uh, it whatever. I mean, two two of my two teams that I don't care a lick about, you know, playing one another. So whatever happens, uh, happens. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Are we doing our rivals, you know, simulcast show this year? Yes. I mean, I've not heard. Yep. Uh, we're what two and a half weeks away yeah. from that date, so we'll be here sooner. Then later, Josh, for your edification, Josh wasn't here last year. No. Um, we venture out on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and do a show with one of our sponsors, Rivals of Store Divided, on location at Rivals. And we have, you know, Gamecock and Tiger fans uh, stopping by. We do it. Uh, help me here, Rev. What is the language? Is it, it simul-cast. simulcasting? Simulcasting, that's go. right. I mean, we're broadcasting on our station and uh, the Bad Boy station, 96.3 ESPN affiliate. And it's uh, it's always a lot of fun. We we have a um we have a bunch of different guests. Uh, if I'm not careful, it turns into a gamecock love fest. It's always tell Rev, let's make sure we talk to this person to that person because I don't want to be a I mean, I'm a gamecock homer. I don't make any apologies to that. But but I want to make sure we're receptive to the. That's why Jason Priester comes on uh, Friday afternoons or Friday mornings mm-hmm. late in the show Fridays because we feel like. You know, we got as many Tiger fans listening to the political oriented sure. show as we do Gamecock fans, and we want to
1: And we may lean a little bit toward the Gamecock well, me, talk we but lean it's just a
0: lot. you and I. We <laughs> you and I lean a lot toward the Gamecock. So uh, I mean, you course. know that. <laughs> um but but we want to try and understand there's another that bunch in the upstate, they yep. deserve some consideration uh as well. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven is my number. I get about four or five texts yesterday. Um trying to convince me that I'm, I'm on, I mean, it, these are, these are people who make the, the political world in South Carolina move. I mean, they really and truly do. And they know that I'm 100% America first. I mean, I've made no bones about that. Some have heard me say that others word has gotten back that he's hundred percent America first. Uh, I'll give an example. There's a, uh, a former Nikki Haley uh, alumna that says, can we talk to Ken? Uh, Ken's, He's pretty far down that America first road. I don't know if, it's, um, if if we could sit down and try to convince him. Well, anyway, we get a lot of polling yesterday that shows Nikki Haley doing much better than Donald Trump. Um, Trump's up five in Michigan. She's up 10. Uh, Trump's down two in Wisconsin. She's up 11. Trump is up four in Pennsylvania. She's up 10. And the, the remarks to me, the, the text and, and calls I got was, I mean, it's a slam dunk. I mean, if you vote for Nikki, if we support Nikki, if we kind of bail on Trump and Nikki's our nominee, I mean, it's over. I mean, she wins these swing states as if they're red states. But but the point they're failing to understand, they know this is true because they're brighter than I am about politics. Maybe not. Uh, But the thing they fail to understand is the media wants somebody other than Trump. The media wants Nikki Haley. But the moment Nikki becomes the nominee, she becomes the Antichrist.
1: That's right. We've seen it before. Sure. Remember Mitt Romney yeah, John McCain?
0: CNN is saying, you already give Nikki Haley a look-see. MSNBC, the New York Times, Washington Post, Haley's gaining momentum. This is the Haley moment in the primary. The second that lady becomes the nominee is the second they begin to find every single thing she's ever done, ever talked about, ever mentioned, ever promoted, ever voted for, ever hired, and it's going to be... All guns turned on Nikki Haley. So, you know, stop believing that nonsense. And plus, I would ask, um, I mean, if the America first wing of the party is the most prominent, what is different about a President Haley from a President Biden? I mean, ask yourself that. I mean, she's not a Democrat, and I'm not accusing Nikki of being a Democrat, but she's somewhat of a unipartyist. She's somewhat I mean, she would they, be coherent,
1: um, and that's an improvement. I mean,
0: there's no doubt about that, and, and I'm not saying you know that. I mean, every Republican primary voter deserves to consider who they deserve to consider, but I think we're falling for things. I mean, we got to be brighter than that. We got to understand that that someone trying to talk into voting for Haley because what these polls say is because she's been the darling, so to speak. Of um, the reason Pence was not the darling is he's too Jesus-y. And that, you know, that, that, that evangelical Christian faith on your sleeve is not going to endear you in uh, the very secular world that is the American political media or, or you know, the, the American political commentary. It's just not, I mean, he's not the guy that's going to advance um, by being a devout Christian and a born-again Christian. Nikki doesn't talk much about, much about that. But she hits some of these globalist talking points. Uh, so I, think, the, I think we said is, that
1: about you know, when it looked like Desantis was going to be the guy that could challenge Trump the most. We said and he was going to be the darling in the media until he got the nomination. Then he would have been the worst thing ever, even worse than Trump. I
0: mean, and when and, and, and think about this. So so Desantis has a current governing record, and the media is just being highly critical of his governing record. Nikki doesn't have that right now. I mean Nikki has the luxury of running for president without having to make decisions in a state. I mean, if Nikki was governor of South Carolina, it would be a lot more complicated. I mean, she's skating a bit now because they're 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 trying to find somebody other than Trump. And here's the reason, guys. They believe Trump legitimately threatens the system that they built and entrenched in. I mean they they believe that. We've convinced them, not me individually, not you individually. But collectively, we Republicans have convinced the establishment, the uniparty, the status quo, that there is legitimacy. To this threat, it has sustainability. It has some legs, so to speak. One of the interesting things we touched on yesterday, and we didn't go as far down that road as I would have liked, was the American moment. This this um this recruiting apparatus within the America First movement. That's probably the most encouraging article I've read in many many moons. That there are young men and women who believe in America First. Who didn't go to Yale, Princeton, Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, uh, uh, Columbia, but rather you know the University of Iowa, University of Clemson, South Carolina, some of these you know less elite, less prestigious universities, but they're making their way into politics, and they're they're trying to. Well, here's what they're trying to do. J.D. Vance is a big part of this. I told Rev yesterday. I think you read something uh, yesterday about J.D. Vance mm-hmm. being a big part of this. Yep. Vance is a big part of this. Josh Hawley's a big part of this. Um, Rand Paul's a big part of this. Uh, Obviously, Peter Thiel is probably riding the checks uh, in the background to fund a lot of this. But what they want to make sure is when Trump gets elected, he brings in with him north of a thousand staffers who understand America first, who are not sitting there being obstinate and and. Uh, you know, opposed to the agenda that the president was ushered in by Trump gets to Washington in 16, and I mean, as as much as he understands the political world, I think he totally underestimated how much pushback there would be from these government agencies, from these career employees, and you and you got to find like-minded people to go into Washington with you. So when Trump gets elected in 20, if America um, if America moment has its way, it'll have. North of a 1,000, hopefully, they, they hope 2,000. I mean, that's their goal. 2,000, and they're having classes. I mean, they're training. What are the priorities? What, what are what are we standing on? What do we hope to get done once we get there? J.D. Vance has been a big part of this. And I've said for, what, a year and a half that somebody has to provide the intellectual underpinning, and it seemed to me that Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance were probably best equipped in elected office. Now, there are some people that aren't in public office that, that are very involved in the minutiae of making policy and advancing an agenda. But Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance seem to me to be the most forceful, the most forceful uh, advocates for the America first agenda. So if Trump, I'm to be back up when Trump gets elected in 2024 out with the old, the 1500 staffers that have been there forever, that don't want change, that get their health care. In in essence, some of the the, the American model, I think Teal may have said this: the majority of staffers in Washington are kids that the parents don't want them anywhere near the family business, so they they send them off to Yale, they send them off to Princeton, they they call a good political friend of theirs because they've made contributions, and they say, hey, I really don't want my son back in this business. How about you guys give him a job at the State Department or DOJ or wherever? And that's kind of how the government is operated. That's why we're so incompetently and ineffectively governed. Take a break. Back in a few. It's always kind of interesting to do a political radio show on Election Day. In today's Election Days, we're thinking yesterday or talking, discussing what the most important election uh, happening today that could give some sort of— um. I mean, it could frame the debate for what's happening uh, the rest of this cycle leading up to the presidential um, election. The Kentucky governor's race— Is interesting to me. Um, A a popular Democrat in a Republican state is always interesting. Uh, Daniel Cameron is dead even with Governor Beshear. Uh, We'll see how that plays out. And that probably does speak to enthusiasm. The one thing that I read, and I want to go back to the poll with Haley, um, because Rev was talking about, you know, so you're saying she's not improving amongst Republican primary voters. I mean, she's about where she's been. The, the media narrative is trying to convince America that there is a, an alternative on the rise to Donald Trump. That's not the case. And here's the problem, is there is a consolidation. There are only three candidates with significant shares. Trump's at about 50-ish. I mean, depending on what state you're in, he's a little beneath 50 or below 50 in some states, above 50 in, in other states. And then you've got Ramaswamy, who kind of, I mean, he's had his moment. I mean, in all honesty, he made an impact and, and he's still somewhat of a, um, a consequential figure, but he's declining in the polls. Um, Tim Scott, for whatever reason, uh, did not, that just didn't play well. Uh, and I, and I told Rev one morning, I said, Rev, with all due respect, selling optimism in today's political world is just not going to fly. I mean, I, I wish we were at a place in America where the average American believed that government was aspirational and could inspire to, to create better outcomes and, and better things at a better place. That's not where the American electorate are. They're angry, they're frustrated, um, and they want somebody to vent their frustration, vent their anger. And when Tim Scott shows up with a hallelujah grin and talks about his compelling life story, it works in church giving a testimony. I mean, it does inspire people to lead better lives and to, uh, you know, convict themselves to things that matter, but it doesn't help you get elected. It just doesn't, especially with the GOP base right now because they're resentful of government. They they resent the fact that they've been looked down upon or, you know, disparaged or deplorables. Remember the Hillary Clinton comment. Uh, Bill Maher's kind of got this figured out about as well as anybody. Um, what What is the guy that um, does the show on CNN. Ah, uh, Tapper? Nah, he's one of the lesser guys. Oh. Fareed Zakari. Oh, okay. Yeah, he he uh, sat down with Bill Maher yesterday at a podcast, and uh, and asked Bill Maher uh, basically, and Maher's great answer. He said, "Bill, you're kind of a student uh, of politics and history. What do you make of this guy who has 91 indictments, and he's been beaten in the 2020 election, and he and he's you know he's just the most bombastic, narcissistic." Um, insulting personality we've ever seen uh, running for president. And he went on and on. I mean, Farid Zakari just, you know, and 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 Bill Maher basically said, you asking that question is why this guy has a very good chance to be elected president again. I mean, everything you asked in that question had the you know, kind of insulting nature about it. And people are tired of being insulted. They're tired of being frowned down upon. They're tired of being, um, you know, told you're not quite as good as all these other important people. And, uh, and, and, you know, able people. And that's just, and, and, and like I've said it before, God loved common people. He made a bunch of them or a bunch of us. And, um, and I, this is kind of our revenge tour, um, so to speak. But, but the, I want to go back to Haley because here's where people are just missing the boat. And um, if DeSantis and Haley are tied for second, I mean, I don't think they are. I still think DeSantis is in second place. But for argument's sake, let's say they are. They're both at about 15, 16% ish. Um, I mean, they're a little, I think Nikki's lower than that in the national polls. But in some of these early voting states, she and DeSantis are in the same neighborhood. I think DeSantis averages in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, somewhere around 15 or 16. I think Nick, Nikki's at about 13 or 14. So they're about the same. But here's the problem, guys if there is a coalescing around Nikki Haley, I mean, DeSantis has hit his ceiling. I mean, that's it. I mean, you know, he gave it the old um, lineman's try. It's it. I mean, you know, he just didn't have it for whatever reason. Um, it's not his time. Mike Pence kind of, you know, eloquently said, it's just not my time in history. And he's right. And it's not DeSantis' time. Um, but but when you when you go to Haley and you say, okay, Nikki Haley could catch lightning in a bottle and go from 14 or 15 to 35 or 6 and take, but she's not going to do that because if if DeSantis decides that now's not his time, I mean he's not getting out. DeSantis stays in, and he got an endorsement from the uh, governor of Iowa. So what? You know, it's voters, not endorsements. It's voters, not op eds. It's voters, not newspaper uh, articles. It's voters. I mean that's how you win election right now. The Republican primary voters prefer Donald Trump by a mile. They just do. Uh, you know, I don't know why. I mean, I think I have an idea. Some of the answer, but I don't know why he's at 50% and nobody else can get to 20%. But 43% of DeSantis voters say Trump's their second choice. Only 21% of DeSantis voters say Haley. So if you want DeSantis out to have a head-to-head with Trump, Trump gets a bigger lead because he gets more of the DeSantis vote. That's, I mean, it's just, <laughs> I'm almost ready to say it's inevitable. And if it weren't for these trials, and I'd love to have mics and, and cameras in these courtrooms because it's got to be wild. I mean, it's got to be um, court TV on steroids. It's got to be cops meets court TV. I mean, you see Trump storm out of the courtroom. You see his lawyers say um, yesterday, I don't know if you saw this or not, Rev, um, the judge basically pounded the podium, I'm mean, at the desk, if we believe what some of the Trump team are saying and a couple of reporters um, pound the desk and say, I didn't come to hear what he has to say.
1: Mm-hmm. I read that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't come to hear what he has to say. They're going to indict Trump. I mean, they're going to find him guilty. I mean, there's no way around it. I mean, this judge and this, uh, what what the, uh, the Letitia James, the AG of New York. I mean, she made it her business. I saw a uh, kind of a YouTube video yesterday of her at a fair campaigning. One of these festivals, art festivals, in the streets of New York, and somebody's doing a selfie and says, promise me you're going after Trump. And she says, yeah, of course we are. We're going to arrest him. We're going to indict him, arrest him, and incarcerate him. I mean, that, that's her. I mean, that's what she ran on, you know, to go after Donald Trump. And But, but to me, when, when a trial is media-oriented, you're playing into Trump's hands. Letitia James and this judge are no match for Donald Trump in this media street fight. And it looks to me that they've embraced. And maybe that's always been Trump's strategy to be so bombastic that it becomes somewhat of a, um, just so far out of the ordinary. We don't conduct trials like this in America. You don't have judges acting this way. You don't have AGs acting this way. Well, I think the reason he got judges and AGs acting this way is Trump goads them into playing the hand he thinks is to his best advantage, the unique political skill that Donald Trump possesses is one. He, he turns every situation into a street fight. And when you're in a street fight, you're fighting under his conditions. He's always done that. I'm not saying it's good for democracy. I'm not saying it's the way a presidential candidate should behave. But Donald Trump has this knack of taking whatever situation he finds himself in, turning it into a street fight. And if you get a street fight between Letitia James... This bespeckled um, judge and Donald Trump, I can tell
1: you who my money's on. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I, I was reading some of the, I guess, the play-by-play that was coming out of the courtroom yesterday, and it was pretty intriguing, but I also afterwards watched the, I guess, the the conference that Trump's attorney had. She was incredible. Yeah. And she came out and gave her basically rebuttal to the AG's talk from before the, uh, the trial or before the uh, hearing, and then hers afterwards. She's really good. The one thing she said that she'll regret, she said, I
0: get paid to defend my clients. You may get paid. You may not. (laughs) If you win. Take a break. Back at a few. 843-661-0937. One of the other interesting um, questions today on the ballot will be in Ohio. It'll be an abortion referendum. It'll be a ballot question. And it basically is to reinstitute Roe v. Wade Uh, in the state of Ohio. It will change the state's constitution. Um, There's some ambiguity here, some interpretation by uh, Democrats and Republicans. My concern is it does not, I mean, to me, and the way I read it, I mean, I'll try to find it in the next hour and we'll go through it bit by bit because it's important. It's abortion on the ballot, and Republicans have struggled in places where abortion has been Uh, on the ballot, Ohio is a swing state. It's a little bit redder now than it was eight years ago, but it's still somewhat of a swing state. And it's interesting. We saw what happened in uh, Missouri, which is a red state. Um, People rejected uh, some of the, what they perceived to be extreme positions on abortion. Um, I think the Republicans in Ohio have done a better job of not allowing themselves to be labeled as extreme on abortion but it, it, it gets into gender transitioning. Um, the, LC, the ACLU wrote the legislation that'll be um, the ballot referendum question. And one of the things the American Civil Liberties Union has been adamant about is a, a, a teenage girl's right to have an abortion without parental notification or consent. And that's where this could get in trouble. I think the voters of Ohio do believe that Republicans have, in certain places, come up with pretty extreme ah, extreme measures to curtail abortion. I'm being political here. I'm not giving my personal opinion. I'm talking about the, um, the realities of politics. And I think in, 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 in slightly red state Ohio, which is still a swing state, slightly red, uh, but still a swing state, I believe that the, the messaging is going to be key to this, and a lot of the Republicans' messaging has been, you know, we've got this reasonable position on abortion, but we think it's unreasonable to not notify or – or, or and, and here would be an interesting question. Josh, you're younger. At what point in time should a young girl be allowed to make a decision about having an abortion without parental notification or consent?
2: In my honest opinion, never, but okay. I, I get – with well, I mean, you would agree, but I, I think
0: you would accept a 30-year-old girl doesn't have to go tell her parents nor have the consent of her parents to have an abortion But right. if it's legal in said state.
2: I guess from a legalistic point of view, 18, but okay. of course, as you know, uh, never is okay to kill people.
0: So. Well, I, mean, I, I get that, but I'm, I'm, I'm asking it to be political for a second. So uh, you, 18. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Rev, what, is that similar to your, yeah. your answer? I mean, that,
2: that's, uh, that's the
1: construct of our society. You're an adult at 18. Okay, so, so up until the age of 18,
0: a, a young female wishing to have an abortion should be made to notify her parents and get the consent of her parents. Mm, the consent of her parents. So a 17-year-old who got pregnant and notifies her parents, and they squabble about what they should or should not do, that 17-year-old girl should not be allowed to have an abortion without the consent of her parents. Yes. Fine with me, we would agree notification yeah. and consent are two different things, yeah, right? Yeah, true, true. Um, I mean, notifying your parents, hey, mom, dad, I'm pregnant, and I'm going to have an abortion. No, you aren't. Yes, I am. Well, you can't. Why can't I? Because the law says. That I've got to consent before a medical provider can allow that female to have the abortion. I think that's where we end up in some of this Ohio Mm -hmm. situation. Because one thing the American Civil Liberties Union has been adamant about is, I guess, the civil liberties a young woman should enjoy at the age of 14, 15, 16, um, and 17. I don't know when a female can get pregnant. But but if one—I mean, we've had, what, 12-year-olds get pregnant. So, obviously— you know, they can't at that age, but that, that's kind of where a lot of this debate is going to be predicated. And Governor DeWine in Ohio has really focused on not the restoring Roe. I mean, that's kind of in essence the language about abortion and reproductive rights is the restoration of Roe. But but it includes some of these caveats that were uh, funded by Planned Parenthood and ACLU about consent and and notification. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there.
1: Brian and Florence. Good morning.
0: Morning. Hey, Ken, I got a question for you. It's not on topic right now,
3: but it could be later today. Let's say Trump is elected in 2024.
0: Who in the hell is going to get to work in his cabinet? I don't think he'll have a problem. I mean, working in the presidential cabinet is a lifelong, I mean, it's something to put on your resume that kind of opens other doors after you I mean, I I know a couple of folks who've worked for presidents they didn't care much for, but the reward and benefit of working in a White House for a president opened doors to other unique opportunities, and they did it anyway. But, Ken, those other cabinets you're describing
3: didn't have a a fairly decent percentage of them end up charged or in jail and
0: racking up (laughs) million-dollar lawyer fees in order to get out of it. That's true. I mean, it seems to me the more you associate with Trump, the more likely you are have legal problems
3: i think he's going to have a hell
0: of a time getting quality people to to staff his cabinet simply because of the risks they're taking personally interesting thank you for the call appreciate that I hadn't thought of that but that, that could be a um an impediment to getting better people uh trump calls a business person and says hey i need you to put your business career on hold for four years and come to work for me in the department of commerce and that person says hey man <laughs> Everybody that runs with you gets in trouble, and I don't want to get in trouble. Um, That's kind of an interesting question because there's been a double standard. I mean, There's no doubt about it. There's been an absolute and obvious double standard. Uh, The folks that have worked for Trump are treated one way. The folks that have worked for other presidents who've gotten in harm's way or done things a little bit illicit or out of bounds, they've been dealt with more delicate gloves uh, as it relates to justice. Let's go to the phone.
1: Breeze,
4: good
0: morning. You're
1: on.
4: Yeah, he's absolutely right. You know, what a great way to destroy your life and career is to be associated with Trump. But, you know, um, if the Democrats were against abortion, the question would be phrased, "Kid, what do you think, uh, Governor, would be a good uh, age for a girl to decide to commit murder? What would be a good time to murder your baby? it would be murder, murder, murder. There'd be videos of these Republicans throwing babies against the walls like some kind of barbarians and everything else, you know, and, uh, and we're so frightened and scared to say anything, just like we're so frightened and scared to say that, uh, that the election was stolen. Well, you can use any words you want to use, but we're, we're, just, we're just chicken. But, you know, going back, you were talking about Haley uh, earlier today. The reason most people but, well, you know, why do most people pick someone to vote, for? And, you know, and what, and what are their reasons why? Why would these people want Haley over Trump would be the question you'd have to ask. Now, they'll tell you the lie. The lie would be, well, we just don't want all of Trump's drama, blah, 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 blah. But the actuality would be something more involved in their best interests. And again, like I said, many times before you may get over to Washington and you may have this grand plan for where you can do what's right, but it don't take long at all before you get corrupted like the rest of them and you're worship worshiping the, the devil's, the devil's, um, the devil god of politics and and daggone government, you know, and they're going to, uh, and they're all going to turn bad. So I, I think that anybody at this point that is not for Trump, whether it's, it's our enemy. They're, you know what I'll tell you, who are the bad guys? The bad guys are anybody that's supporting anybody other than Trump because they want the things to keep going in the same direction they are. Any other person other than Trump are, will let things go in the same direction they're going, and it's just a matter of time gone you know, before. I, I don't even know if it can be stopped but I think it's just a matter of time before they accomplish everything they wanted to accomplish that we're just we're just in that matrix and we don't even realize we're slaves to it.
0: Thank you, Breeze. That's kind of an interesting point. I want to come back to that. We've got to take a break. Josh is doing the, the break sign. You may hear the music in the background. Let's take a break. I want to come back to that because Breeze makes an interesting point that I think we can debate really and truly for the rest of the show. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We talked in the second or in the first hour a little bit about uh, what Trump's lawyer said once she left the courtroom. Um, it's almost like you could charge Trump a billion dollars in gag order fines, and he's still—you're not going to gag the guy. He's going to speak his piece. Uh, some Americans like it, some don't. But um, I mean, the trial is underway in this New York fraud case, um, and I guess to some degree. His business empire is at risk. Um, Executive Director, American Principles Project and GOP Strategist Terry Schilling is with us. Good morning, Terry. How are you? Good morning, Ken. Thanks for having me. So is it fair to say that there is a—I uh, mean, obviously, he, he marched to the beat of his own drum. He, he does his things his way. But but what does he have to be careful about here, Terry.
5: Oh, I think he has to be most careful about uh, upsetting these judges enough to where they end up not giving him an, an an even more unfair trial. Right. I mean, He's already under the gun. He's already, you know, being tried, I think, in four different jurisdictions. I mean, this, there is a serious witch hunt trying to remove him from being able to run for political office in the future. And he's got to be careful that he doesn't make things worse. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's it's hard to fault the guy. I mean, he's getting attacked from all angles. He's, this case in New York is totally garbage. They're saying that he defrauded investors. The problem is he paid back all of his loans. <laughs> there There is no fraud. There's no there's no victims here uh and so it's just he's got to be careful that he doesn't get himself thrown in jail but at the same time we're looking at possibly electing a president from prison right that's never had that's like nelson Mandela, south africa stuff right this is this is a very strange time to be in america i want to go back to
0: something you just said um the the ag and the judge have made it clear they don't care much for I mean, the AG actually ran on a campaign motivated by, you know, arresting and putting in jail, in jail Donald Trump. How do we rectify this? I mean, how, how do we get back to a, an equal application of justice where the American people do believe that no matter whom you are, no matter what political ideology you have, our justice system treats you fairly and the same?
5: Well, I think we at least have to start, uh, you know, prosecuting Democrats for their crimes as well. Right. I mean, there are a slew of crime. Look at the Joe Biden crime syndicate, essentially, that they have. Right. We we actually have the canceled checks that Joe Biden received from his brother. The 10 it was literally like 10 percent going back to that text message that Hunter said where he said our email. I'm sorry that he said, don't forget 10 percent for the big guy. I mean, we need to start prosecuting Democrats just as much, but Republicans refuse to do that. Once you start actually prosecuting Democrats for their high crimes and misdemeanors, then you'll see the Democrats start to pump the brakes and not be so egregious with their uh, uh, obstruction and elimination of justice.
0: Well explained. Terry, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. Thanks you, too. That's, um, you know, until you start going after Democrats with the equal uh, or equal aggressiveness – you're probably going to always have. And maybe that's what people are intrigued by Trump. They don't believe he'll take it laying down. Uh, you throw a punch, he'll throw a punch back. And historically, the Republicans have not been as aggressive in, uh, in, in settling uh, those scores. But let's go back to the point, do you want change or not? And, and what that change looks like. So I said earlier, the concern I would have with Haley, I mean, I, I'll buy this. I'll buy that she's more likely to beat Biden than Trump. I mean, I think you'd buy that. I think Josh would buy that. I mean, I think, you know, yeah. I mean, some of the Trump crowd would stay home, but the independents would overwhelmingly say uh, debt, inflation, crime, borders, foreign policy. But, but uh, to, to
1: your point, she hasn't had the forces well, of I mean, the media turn against her but, yet.
0: But she would still, she's not as divisive nor polarizing as Trump. True. So, so and, and that's his negativity. I mean, they, they, You know, I love it. I mean, I, I'm I, I'm. I love it. I think that's the only way to address it. You got to rip the scab off. I mean, we're we're not doctoring a wound. I mean, we're going to rip the damn scab off and let it what whatever happens happens. I just think we're to that to that desperate point now. Once again, if we're going to elect Trump, and the reason you're voting for Trump is you want to enact a high degree of change in Washington, what are we trying to change? See, I think fundamentally that's where we've got to get. And I'll go to something we discussed last week as crazy as this sounds a a lot of the motivation for support of Trump is this two sets of rules that there's a set of rules for those who have amassed power and influence in the body politic and then there's those who have not now I'm on level with you full disclosure I've said it before and I'll say it again I've got a foot in each camp I mean, Rev kind of, you, you know, I mean, I, I'm mean, I've i I'm a bit hypocritical. I'm not a total hypocrite, but I'm being a bit hypocritical. I've made some of the sausage. I mean, I know how that game is played, and I played that game sometimes to my advantage. So full disclosure, I've got a foot in each camp. But my heart is with a government that treats everybody fairly, and let's tear down these damn systems that advantage groups of people because they make political donations at the expense of those who don't and can't. I mean that that's where my heart is, but I'm leveling with you, if from 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 the most uh, from the most practical place in my life. I've got a foot here, to foot there. So so let's go back to something that we touched on last week, Josh, and that's the Fed. I offered up this crazy idea. I mean my crazy idea. Remember we talked a little bit about the, some of the footnotes at the Bank of New York, Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and we talked about the mortgage industry. And I wanted to know, and I mean, just for my satisfaction, why does the Federal Reserve have $2.5 trillion of mortgage-backed securities on its balance sheet? I mean, I think I know why. It's to manipulate the housing market. It's to create forward momentum, uh, asset appreciation. Uh, I mean, if we've gotten better, more and more buyers for mortgage-backed securities, why wouldn't more and more people buy homes? You know, the bank says, I only want this much mortgage-backed securities on my balance sheet because I'm fearful about, I mean, housing is cyclical. And I don't want to get caught in one of these bad cycles. So the Fed basically says, park it here. You know, just park it on our balance sheet. $2.6 trillion. Um, I mean, that benefits a, a sector of our economy at the expense of another. And I'm going to be candid. And, I, I'm you know, I, I doubt we are popular in this world after this. But the, the folks associated with the housing industry did extremely well. Extremely well. Those buying homes didn't. I mean, the, the low interest rate kept, um, you know, payments affordable, but you know that can't stay way, that way forever. And I'm not offended. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that some group of people are, are doing nefarious things. I'll give you another example here. Let's make everybody mad while we're doing this today. <laughs> sure. Why does public sector employees enjoy such l- more lucrative health insurance benefits than private sector? I mean, why is that the case? You see where I'm headed? I mean, if we're going to vote for change, what does the change look like? I mean, if, 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 if J.P. Morgan and BlackRock can be custodians and risk managers for $2.6 trillion of mortgage-backed securities, why can't Joe Sixpack call the Fed and ask for a line of credit to buy a home at a standardized um, interest rate? I mean, that sounds outlandish. That sounds crazy. You don't understand banking, Ken. Well, I understand the Fed was never intended. To be home based for $2.6 trillion in mortgage-backed securities, and I understand somebody did exceedingly well when the Fed decided to do that, and guess who it was not? It was not Joe Sixpack. I can assure you of that. I mean, and, and we got to stop that, and if we're going to change, damn it, let's change. We're not going to change a little bit of this, and a little, let's fundamentally change the way government picks winners and losers. And if I were in Washington, and I introduced a bill that said, because think about this, guys, those benefiting, and I'm not opposed to public work, uh, public sector employees. I mean, I've said for a long time there's going to be kind of a, um, a conflict here at some point in time. Um, when government workers are allowed to retire earlier and have more lucrative benefits on the other side of a work life than private sector employees, and the private sector employees continue to have to fund some of these better and more lucrative benefits, I mean, do you believe the the, the public sector, excuse me the private sector employees won't wake up one day and say, "What's up with this?" I mean, why why is why is the gym that I go to at 10:30 inhabited by former government workers? I mean, I, I, if we're going to chill, we're gonna to have to hurt people's feelings, guys. I mean, that's the point I'm trying to make. We 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 run around and scream and yell and say we won't change. We want the government to stop picking winners and losers until you're one of those winners. I mean, it's easy when you're a loser to say government sucks and government's got to stop doing this and stop doing that. What about the people who won't change but enjoy the benefit of government picking winners and losers? That's complicated. I just admitted. I mean, I've done something most of you won't do. I'll admit that I'm a hypocrite here. I'll admit that I've got a foot in each camp. I'll admit that I've worked on projects that required government intervention, and I knew how to intervene. Maybe that's what makes me a little bit dangerous on the radio. Maybe that's why some of these powerful people are a little bit concerned that I may say too much on the radio. I'm kind of sort of one of them, and I'm kind of sort of one of y'all. But my heart is there. And, and when we say, hey, I'm voting for Trump because I won't change, explain yourself. Well, what does that mean when you say you won't change? And I know it sounds crazy when I say, if if the government can park two point six trillion dollars in um in mortgage backed securities on its balance sheet, the Fed, and I know the Fed's not the government, but it kind of so it's a creation out of government, and J P Morgan and BlackRock can be paid enormous fees to be custodians and risk managers of that two point six trillion, then 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 why don't I get to play in that game? Why doesn't Josh? When he aspires to be a home owner, why can't Josh have a line of credit at the Fed at 4% or whatever the benchmark rate is, whatever the overnight lending rate is. I understand it's confusing and we've lost our way. Why should a taxpayer have a health insurance policy that requires a $7,500 out of pocket and it's 1500 a month when a government worker can have that same insurance for $500 um, out of pocket and, A $500, there's no fairness in that. I'm sorry, there's just no fairness in that. And and that's why it's getting more and more complicated to vote change into our government because we're all feeding at the trough in some way. You are, I am, the majority of us are indirectly or directly in big numbers and small. We're all feeding from the trough, and the trough is going dry. It's out of food. There's no more in there, and the government subsidizes this incursion in um, Ukraine and this incursion in Israel, and it's, it's confusing to me how Schumer or McConnell or anybody can stand behind a podium and say, Israel deserves this $100 billion. Ukraine deserves this $100 billion. The only question, do we have it? Where's the money coming from? I mean, in the month of October, we spent $600 billion we didn't have. And you're asking me for another $100 billion, as if there, as Bree said, there's a, you know, a lucky leprechaun standing behind the podium just ready and willing to fart nuggets of gold. That's not reality. <laughs> and we've got to address the biggest change we've got to make is make government smaller. And it consumes less money. That's the only hope we got. And if we want government to be smaller and consume less money, there, there are certain things that have to change. And, you know, the housing sector, I mean, that's important to me. That's important to you. It's important to all of us. A healthy housing sector is a healthy economy. But why is the housing sector healthy? Because it's been distorted and manipulated. I predict that there's going to be a 20 to 25% correction in the price of homes. What would a home cost today? a home. What would this home or that home or the other home, what would that home cost today if the Fed didn't have two point six trillion dollars of mortgage backed securities on its balance sheet and interest rates weren't left at zero to create forward momentum and asset appreciation in Wall Street, that's what it was about. I mean when we started this in, in 08, when we started quantitative easing and 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 real I mean just, just super low interest rates, I mean it was about the stock market had sold off 60 or 70 percent and, and and you know the fat cats on wall street needed their money back so let, let's you know quantitative ease let's grow the economy artificially when you say you won't change and you wear that maga cap be careful what you ask for take a break back in a few 843-661-0937 so josh looks at me and in, in kind of an inquisitive way when i said i got a foot in each camp interpret that josh I mean, you're you're not a politician. You've not been around a bunch of former politicians. And I mean, interpret that from your
2: from your seat. Uh, what what I think it means is yep. that you uh, you're a good old boy uh, in an old fashioned sense. You know, you're you're homegrown. You very relatable in a you know, I guess suburban sense. I and uh, but also you've had your fill in politics. You've kind of been on not the hill but a hill. And uh, you know, put your foot in the water and got a sense of what's really going on upstairs.
0: And and that's exactly right. That I couldn't have said it any better myself. <laughs> and, and that makes me aware of these things that I think we need to be paying attention to. And I wanted to say this again. And and Rev, I mean, when I, when I, it sounds like I'm being personal. I'm not. But some of these things have to be said. Some of these things have to be addressed. I'll give you an example. I I'll, I'll self-incriminate myself or self-indict myself when when the ARPA money passed as part of the debate there was whether or not to lower the because we were just I mean we, we were drunk sailors we were spending money we did I mean we've done that for a long time but it was almost like you know let, let's this this marijuana is even stronger than all that other marijuana let, let's take a hit off it or two <laughs> or three and see what we can really do and have fun <laughs> with spending money and we grew the m2 money supply from 15 to 22 trillion dollars. Well, as part of that, there was a debate on one of these subcommittees about Medicare, and it was going to lower the eligibility age from 65 to 60. Now, in all honesty, we should raise it from 65 to 70. I mean, if we're going to address the spending curve and we're going to not leave our kids and grandkids a bankrupt nation, we're going to have to address Medicare. We're going to have to raise the age. We're going to have to means test. I mean, there's no denying that. I mean, I, you know, once again, if Buffett and and Munger don't know what that number is, I don't know. But it does seem to me that debate's getting more and more intense. But but as part of that debate, they weren't talking about raising the age. They were talking about lowering the age to 60. Well, that, that's starting to hit home to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the biggest expense, maybe the biggest expense in my life is health insurance. I'm thinking about, it is. I mean, as a line item in my budget, I would be one of the 30% of Americans whose largest single expense is health care. So I'm thinking about Medicare five years down the road or a month down the road. All of a sudden, I'm a socialist. I'm for bigger government. I'm for further bankrupting the nation. We're all self-preservationists, and it doesn't make us bad. It doesn't make us evil or wicked. It doesn't mean we're unpatriotic. It doesn't mean that I love myself more than I love everybody else. It's just a natural instinct. But but the reality is too many people have benefited from government spending. And we've got to stop that in some way, shape, or form. And if housing has to struggle and realtors have to adjust their style of life, and and if insurance has to be less affordable for public sector employees— then that's just the way it has to be. And, and you know, when you start down that road, you'll be like, oh, you made all the public sector employees mad at you. Well, I'm a Republican. Who cares? You made all the realtors mad at you. Well, I'm a Republican. I got to care. You know, let me go talk to the realtors because I'm pro-business and they're business people. We're going to have to have some of these frank, candid, and honest conversations about how to fix some of these things that have created such a financial situation that we find ourselves in. And there's no easy answer. And the longer we wait, the harder the answer it gets. I mean, the longer we wait, the more complicated uh, the answer gets. And I just use those two because I'll give you another example. And this is part of knowing where to look. In the ARPA money, and I can hear people saying, okay, I'm listening now. Uh, in, in the ARPA money, the American Rescue Plan money, guess what? There was a further incentive for you to go on the Obamacare exchanges. I mean, the ref couldn't believe it when I told him this. I mean, I remember reading the legislation. You can make 400% of poverty. I mean, you can make a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year now and qualify for subsidies until the year 2025 on the Obamacare exchanges. No way. No way you can make $200,000 in household income and qualify for subsidies on the Obamacare exchange. Well, you couldn't until the ARPA money was passed. And as part of the ARPA and some of the sausage-making, that is now a reality. Now it sunsets in 2025, and I have no idea what happens on the other side. But, but how, how does that make any sense? Well, to me, it makes perfect sense. Because, once again, the public sector employees are getting such a fairer shake on health care. But I mean, if I were in Columbia and I introduced legislation that said, you know, we're funded by the taxpayer. I mean, the public sector doesn't make money. I mean, it's funded. Every dollar they collect is from where? The taxpayer. They're taxpayers themselves. I mean, they deserve every consideration that a non-public sector employee deserves. And we're talking about health care for a second. So if I'm in Columbia and I introduce a bill that says no public sector employee can have a health care plan better than those offered to the private sector employees at a equal and similar price. I mean, where, where do you think Blue Cross Blue Shields lobbyists would come? I mean, they'd come, hey, can we sit down for a second or two or three? <laughs> I mean, where do you think the teachers unions and some of the public sector unions would come? But, but guys, these are going to be hard issues that have to be addressed at some point in time. And I know talking about the Fed having a line of credit is, is, is out there. I mean, I, and I said it because I intended it to be out there, but we're going to have to get out of the box to come up with solutions that have created the financial distress that this nation finds itself in. There are many, many smart people in America today that are deeply concerned about Ukraine, deeply bothered about the situation in Israel, more concerned about our fiscal situation. Believe that that is a bigger threat to our national security than uh, the, the uncertainty and civil unrest and war raging in Ukraine and and Israel. And when you think about America as the leader of the Western world and and a Russia on the march, I'm being a a bit, you know, journalistic at Russia on the march in, you know, in that part of the world. And you've got the Middle East unsettled and Israel under attack in that part of the world. Yeah, I mean, those are very important. And historically, they would have been the most important. But we've never owed $33 trillion in debt. And I'm not saying the reason we're $33 trillion in debt is we propped up the housing market. Or the reason we're $33 trillion in debt is we pay too much for our public sector employees' health care. But you can't deny those con- that those have contributed to the enormous amount of money our federal government owes. And if we're going to change things, then that's what the Trump voter says they want, right? I mean, if you ask the Trump voter... will say, I won't change. I'm tired of things operating as they historically have. I just had somebody text me, 400% of poverty level. (laughs) And I think they're doing like counting fingers on you. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm one of those. How do I do do that? How do we go? And this is a conservative soul. But you can't stop people from being self preservationist. I can't stop it. Rev can't stop it. Uh, Josh can't stop it. You have to be. Sure, you do. I mean, absolutely you do. And the government has enticed all of us to kind of say, well, I mean, I'm conservative, but if they did lower that Medicare age to 60, that'd make my life a whole lot easier. <laughs> you know, if they raise that, um, that poverty level from, you know, 120% to 400%. But, but at some point in time, people making decisions on behalf of the country have to understand that we're out of money. I mean, we got to start looking for savings. And where do you find savings? I can tell you where you find savings. You find savings in the Fed not having $2.6 trillion on its balance sheet. You find savings in, uh, dare I say, public sector employees contributing more to their health care than they currently are. And it's not, I mean, when I say these things, I mean, I understand. Well, I'll pull my ads. I mean, there's no way the National Realtors Association would ever advertise on your show. Well, I mean, you're a lobbyist, not an advertiser then. I mean, if you're picking and choosing, I mean, do you really believe that Pfizer thinks – That more people watch meet the press who need to be vaccinated or more people who watch meet the press have some political consciousness about them and are concerned about. I mean, let's call a spade a spade. Let's call it like it is. Let's have these frank, candid conversations that we must have, but nobody does. Because if we have these conversations, those who have amassed influence and power, it goes back to the zero-sum economy. I've I've imagined this. The greatest hypothetical exercise or theoretical exercise that one man could do today is to try and determine how much productivity you add to the economy, how much value you add to the economy, and how much do you take out. And, And if we could do that, you can't, but if you could, if you could design the perfect economy, our GDP is $25 trillion, Josh contributes X. Ken contributed to Y. Um, Rev contributes G. Rev gets exactly what he deserves out of that economy in compensation. Josh does. I do. What we're going to find out is the majority of those who don't get an equal value back for what they contribute in have no relationship with government, have never lobbied government, have never convinced the government this is the right thing to do. Those who are getting far more than their fair share – would probably be those who have consistently and successfully lobbied the government to give them more than their fair share. It's not evil. It's not illegal. It's not malicious. It's self-preservation 101. I am in this business. I need my business to be more successful. If I get a little more than my fair share, good for me. But the best way for me to do that is to get involved in the affairs of government and how it works. And that's just, we, we've done too much of that to the point of having $33 trillion in debt that nobody, nobody has any idea how to pay back. Take a break, back in a few. The, the point I want to make is this, and I, and I want to reiterate, I am getting blown up. Um, the point I'm making is, if we say we want change, the biggest change has to be the amount of money we spend that we don't have. But that's got to be top of the list. We can debate neoconservatism, we can debate what we should do or should not do in Israel or Ukraine, but the biggest change that has to happen in Washington if we're going to salvage a future for our country has to be stop spending money that we don't have. And when you when you stop spending money that we don't have, we're not throwing the money in the river. We're we're funding programs, we're funding ventures, we're funding Um, government agencies. We're offering benefits. We're giving reward, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, health insurance. There there are a lot of places that are going to be changed if indeed we're serious about this debate, but it's going to require spending about six, eight hundred billion dollars a year we don't have. And where does that money come from? I mean, it all can't come out of defense. It all can't come out of domestic. I mean, it, it, well, it is going to come out of one or the other. It's got to come out of some foreign aid, some domestic policy, so some, some you know, changing of Social Security and Medicare. So, so you know, when Breeze said, if you don't vote for Trump, you're not voting for change, my point, be careful what you're asking for. You're asking for the right thing, but what does that look like? I want change in government. Uh, wh- okay, what biggest change do you want? I mean, I can speak for myself. The biggest change I want today is government to stop spending money it doesn't have. What does that look like? A lot different than what it does
1: today. Let's go to the phone. Joe and Florence, good morning. Joe, you're on. Uh,
6: Good morning, guys. Uh, Just a comment about governmental workers, whether they be local, state, or federal. Um, I've always heard that people work for the government for the benefits. Um, the, The salary is usually less than the private sector, But people have better benefits. So I think if you cut the benefits, that may really reduce the incentive to work for the government, and you may have to up the wages. I, for example, spent the first half of my life in private sector and really had no good health care, no pension, no time off, um, a lot less job security. And now that I'm working for the, uh, the government, I'm probably making half as much money but it's a better uh choice of overall lifestyle for me because of the benefits and the security back in the 1980s the private sector was bloated there were tons of unnecessary layers of management and during the merger mania a lot of those layers were eliminated and believe it or not they kind of got rid of the deadwood and so the number of managers are much fewer than they were in the 80s but their productivity is the same so the answer might not be, you know, getting rid of the benefits of the government workers. The ben- the, uh, the the answer might be having fewer workers who are higher quality and more productive. And uh, you know, like we used to say in the private sector, you know, uh, it's good enough for government work. <laughs> you know, have the have the the quality of the government employees to be higher, so they can have fewer of them. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you,
0: Joe. Appreciate that. See, I put that on the table. I mean, how do we make the government's workforce less expensive? I mean, it needs to perform. It, it, I mean, I'm not. This is not an attack on government workers. I know I can be guilty of that, uh, but it's not. I mean, at all. I mean, I, we we've got some really good government workers. I'm thinking of two or three in, in my world that that I know are diligent and 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 competent and do a good job. But we've got to figure out a way to make it less expensive. We can't afford government bloat. We can't afford. The layers of government, the expense of government, the cost of government—it—it's it, almost you're, you're talking about the mid-management and all the layers of um, and 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 there's no doubt the private sector makes mistakes. But I mean, there, there's no question about it—the private sector during certain runs has you know layers of bloatedness, and they have corporate profit, and you know they they blow the profit. They don't save the profit. They hire all these junior vice presidents making a hundred and Twenty-five or $30,000 a year, next thing you know, the economy turns and they've got to make some, some significant changes. There is no denying, and, I, and I'll listen to Joe. I mean, if Joe were across the table from me as their consultant or lobbyist or, or you know, representative, I'd say, okay, Joe, uh, let, let's not mess with the benefits. But, but how can we shave 10%? How can we accomplish the job of running our government with 15% fewer employees? It's got to get less expensive. I mean, it does. It's going to have to get less expensive, and and this is at the local, state, and federal level. We we've got to begin to seriously consider what a government looks like that has a trillion dollars less to run itself. Guys, if it when when about there's about eight hundred, ah, it's about one point six trillion dollars that'll refinance this month. There's another two and a half trillion that'll refinance next month. That nearly five trillion it's about 4.23 trillion dollars I mean that four, let's call it four. the four trillion dollars that refinances before the calendar goes to 2024 is, is going to increase our debt service by about 160 billion dollars. I mean, it's going from you know two and a quarter percent to four and a half or five percent. I mean, it's, it's going to be we, we, we can't sustain this. We can, look, Josh has an opinion about Israel. I have an opinion about Israel. We all have an opinion about Ukraine. And and I don't know that I'm right. Josh doesn't know that he's right. Rev doesn't know that he's right. You don't know that you're right. You have this opinion. It's informed. You're, 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 you're not, it is what you, I mean, it is what it is, and you believe what you believe. But there's no way anybody serious can conclude we can continue as we are. You just can't. I mean, that's that Impractical, irresponsible, I know it's dumb. I mean it's dumb to believe that we can continue to rack up the enormous debt without doing anything, and there's no one thing we can do. It's going to be a multitude of things as part of that is going to have to be a way to figure out to operate the government with less money. J- Joe's saying, okay, let's find higher quality people and get them to do a little you know uh, uh, maybe. Maybe they've got, you know, um, six things to get done today. They'll have to have seven things to get done today, but, but that's where we're going to end up at some point in time. Now, once again, I have no idea what that number is and, and I didn't come ready to talk about that, but I've got a list of a lot of other things. It's election day today. I thought we'd talk about, um, Kentucky, but, but every now and then I get on this rant about fiscal discipline and the lack we have of that. And it's medicare it's medicaid it's social security but it's a lot of other things and somebody better try to understand how to run government with less money how are we going to run the federal government with a trillion dollars less dollars
1: there doesn't ever seem to be that discussion right i mean i mean besides the few besides rand paul for example he's pretty consistent in that but why is that not coming off the lips of everybody in Congress
0: because Congress loves to say yes
1: you endear
0: yourself to constituents when you say yes Dave Baker I can help you yes Josh I can help you but but imagine a a guy running for Congress and he's at a stump and he's giving a speech and he says vote for me and you got to work five years longer vote for me and if you're a government worker there's a 10 percent chance you get fired vote for me and we may not fix as many potholes as we fixed last year. I mean, imagine, why would any reasonable person... It's not person a winning campaign No, it's, 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 it's the worst campaign imaginable, but it's the only path forward. It's the only way for our country to maintain its status as the, I mean, I don't want to say the preeminent superpower, but a geopolitical superpower. And here's what you got to consider. What does America look like as a non-superpower? I don't think I live long enough to see us lose that status. I'm 90% sure my kids do. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. 90% sure that Josh will live in an America that is not designated a superpower. Now, now what is the designation of a superpower? Some of it's legacy. You know, um, we believed that Greg Maddox was a great pitcher at 41. He was at 32 or three pretty average at 41, but he's still Greg Maddox. Well, I mean, we, we could have, I mean, I, I, I just believe that we're in the dawn of the American century, skip me, the dusk of the American century. And if we don't do some things to address our debt situation, it could happen sooner than later. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University um rabbit tennessee volunteer fan sometime buffalo bill
7: fan is with us today good morning sir how are you that was somewhat decent weekend i intend to tennessee one with these and when your your team puts the the backups in with eight minutes to go in the third quarter that's a very relaxing saturday afternoon you know you're opening up a can of you know what on the opponent <laughs> and the bills just didn't play their best game but just played good enough to kind of keep you interested and then broke your hearts at the, the very end. Just one play away. Couldn't make, the, couldn't make a stop but, on but third down. But Cincinnati's a good team now. I mean, Cincinnati's oh, a really good team. And Burroughs is the real deal. And Cincinnati, we said before, they stink early on, but they always kind of put it together. If Buffalo played a, m- a month ago, Buffalo probably wins that game. And the Bills are now out of the playoffs. I mean, who'd have thought that just uh, the AFC is just, just loaded? And Buffalo has Kansas City, Dallas, hmm. Philadelphia, Miami still on the schedule. So... It, what well, we do you think about when the draft starts? Well, if you're a Bills fan, to be honest with you, I am a I was not
0: a Bills fan Sunday because <laughs> Joe Burrow is who smoked Clemson yeah. in the uh, in the uh, <laughs> national championship series or, or game. So uh, I've always had a place in my heart for, <laughs> for Joe Burrow uh, because uh, because of that. Um,
7: yeah, he's good. Yeah. he's a good guy when he's when he's healthy. He's no, he's, he's one of the very best. He,
0: he may be the best quarterback I in the game so. when he's when he's healthy. Okay, mm-hmm. and. Um, and here's the question I pose to you, and then we'll get on to sure. to, to American history. Um, Georgia is the best football team of the
7: East. Tough to argue with that. Okay, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, we'll find out this Saturday who the second best is I, when I Missouri so. and Tennessee play one another.
7: That's right, three three thirty.
0: Yeah, so, mm-hmm. in Columbia, Missouri. In Columbia.
7: Yeah. Oh, okay. I, yeah, but who really is worried about going to Columbia, Missouri? Missouri? I mean, it's not one of those. It's no. Neyland, Williams. It's loud. There's a history. That's all right. I, it's, it's, You're probably more concerned with the, the travel. It's a long, a long player. And the Missouri, I mean, Missouri fan is good, but I mean, they've they've got like rocks in the end zone. It's a it's it's a weird stadium. It's a weird setup they got now. Not Tennessee. I'll probably get rolled and I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll eat my worth. But I mean, it's, yeah, you, but you, no, you don't
0: lose any sleep. it's, no, but, it's not like
7: LSU. But you, Missouri
0: has been. You're right. It's a weird fit. I mean, they yeah, they yeah. don't feel like the SEC but for, they've held their own. No, I mean, they they've held their own since they, they got f- in the when league. When they
7: first got here, they won the East. Correct. A, cu- a couple of times. They they've kind of fallen on hard times, but they're they're back right now. And uh, right if if you sleep on them, and they they gave George a little bit of a scare. Last week the depth kind of wore out in the end, but no, I think for it it is that who's kind of kind of be the one to to maybe challenge Georgia down the road. It looks like Florida is imploding as we, Kentucky is Kentucky. And the Gamecocks are kind of the we're in the perpetual the rebuilding mode. We we've, we've been in the 125 year rebuilding. Well, well, Carolina place. will punch up above its weight once or twice. You're just Tennessee fan knows that all that well from last year. Yeah, you, it's, you would you, when in your homecoming against uh, Jacksonville State, when you have to rely on a pick six at the yeah, end. Uh, yeah. But oh, an ugly win has been another pretty you loss.
0: I mean, I said yesterday, I've never left williams Bryce with one county more than another. A uh, win is a win is a win is a win. And you're okay. still
7: you're on the path to being bowl eligible. Uh, okay. You've been kind. you are been kind. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, the long and winding
0: road. Yeah. He wants me to come uh, be a guest lecturer at his class is what he's kind of uh, ginning me up for here. Yeah. Probably not. Fred Carter said, and, no way that happens. Happen. Yeah. No, no way that happens. Okay. I want to ask a hypothetical. All right. We were debating last week uh, the constitutionality or not of something. And one of our good liberal callers was trying to um, offer up abortion and gun rights as one of the same. They're not. Oh, I mean, the Constitution no. does not speak to abortion. Right. It's, it's, it speaks specifically right. to is the, second, uh, the sure. second Amendment. Is is, is right. clear as a bell. It's about gun rights. It's about defending yourself, your property, your right. family.
7: You've, you what? gotta jump through hoops to get to the to abortion. Correct. The,
0: okay, let, let's do this. Let's imagine that we're having a constitutional convention. <laughs> Um, in a a Hilton property in Florence, South Carolina and all our, our, our great and esteemed founders get a day back on earth. What, what do you think was not considered in that convention that would be considered today? I mean, obviously there's no email or Google or, (laughs) or jet airplanes or, you know, guns that shoot a hundred rounds in half a second. But what, I mean, that's kind of an unfair question because you're, you're a historian, but but hypothesize for one second was there was there when we called it the great debate and the great compromise yeah. were there things that someone had included that didn't
7: make the cut? <laughs> James Madison one of the things that he was adamant for was the national government to have a veto uh, over any law that a state had passed, and so eventually it kind of you get this through judicial review down the road. Uh, they rejected it and Madison tried several times to try and slip this through. Uh, in what the was his, I mean, why
0: why was he so adamant about the federal government being kind of the end all?
7: Exactly. Yeah. Okay, you you had the under the Articles of Confederation, the government was so powerless, it really couldn't do anything at all. There was no respect. We couldn't make the British live up to the terms of the Treaty of Paris. The British still had troops on American soil, and they had signed a treaty saying they were going to remove them, and we called them. The British said, "Well, there's, you can't do anything about it, right? You don't have an army. You have no means, really." To threaten us, you know, we, we couldn't pay the troops that we did have in the army under the Articles of Confederation. So the government was just very, very weak. And so Madison is essentially an overcorrection. We're going to give the national government probably even more powers than it deserved. But again, it's a, in the context of the times. Who
0: opposed Madison the most in that? Was he isolated in wanting that to happen? Or did he have some support and there was no, opposition? He had,
7: he had lots of support. And just for just for whatever reason, this issue, they thought it was— too much of an overcorrection. It was too much of an extreme. A lot of these guys were still very, very committed to the idea of states' rights. And then again, right, a, a state Supreme Court decision should be permanent. Big Brother shouldn't then be able to come in and say, uh-uh-uh, we're going we're to overturn this and go the other way.
0: If Jefferson nor Adams were there, <laughs> here's another yeah. hypothetical. What if they were? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you've played that out in your head. I oh, mean, yeah. the, the yeah. great thinkers of early America. I mean, the great thinkers of the Revolution—they um, weren't there. With a great document was 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 basically ordained to yeah. to create a governing uh, parameter for our for our nation. What would have happened
7: in your mind had Jefferson and Adams been included in that great debate? Well, these are the two smartest guys probably on the planet, and they weren't shy about letting you know that they were the smartest guys. And they would have walked in the room, and probably Adams would have gotten up and said it, and Jefferson would have been a little more politely. Probably would have written it down uh, to let you know. Jefferson and Adams didn't, as much as a lot of the other guys, didn't believe in the art of compromise. They were very, very principled. They were they, this, this was the hill they were going to die on. And so they were very, very slow. Adams, in particular, just didn't like the art. And John Adams thought the ideal form of conversation was an argument. I mean, that's how he tried to solve all of his problems, getting into shouting matches and essentially trying to overawe you and intimidate you. And Jefferson would maybe try and at least maybe finesse you, try and he'd write a pamphlet or a treatise to try and get you around. But yeah, these were two guys who were very, very committed into their beliefs. And the genius of the founding fathers, the guys at Philadelphia, is that they did make numerous compromises. Uh, they cut some deals. A lot of the, the back and forth wasn't done in Independence Hall. It was done at the bars, the taverns, the saloons, uh, sort of after hours. You know, guys kind of getting a little drunk, a little tipsy and saying, I'll give you this if you give me that in the long run. So again, it's it's a great what if. Maybe they could have, it's, it's kind of tough to improve on almost a near perfect document uh, if Jefferson and Adams were there. Uh, but again, yeah, it's, it's a great hypothetical and it's <laughs> we'll never know the answer. But, but
0: did the constitution reflect more of a Jeffersonian perspective or a Hamiltonian perspective? Because you would agree the Jeffersonian strain of government probably dominated the right, first yeah. half century of America.
7: Yeah. It, it's more Jeffersonian, and Hamilton was the more wily, shrewd guy. He figured out the loopholes, the back doors, the end-arounds, you know, sort of the— But the
0: Hamilton rules. gets killed when? Uh,
7: 1804, yeah. Okay. July of 1804, Aaron Burr shoots him uh, in New Jersey. And Hamilton's words were—last words were, don't let me die in New Jersey. Roll me back to New York. So he didn't—those weren't his last—but it's a good story. But
0: But <laughs> Hamilton participated in the
7: debate of Constitution though he was he was a founding father he was a hamilton though was so extreme such a uh, advocate of a strong national government the state of new york sent 3 delegates to philadelphia the other two guys there were to serve as a check on hamilton so that hamilton the new york officials knew he was so so far out there uh, if hamilton has his way who knows what type of government and hamilton gave a 6 hour speech where he said i said you needed a king a president who would serve for life and then when he was done after this lengthy six-hour speech, uh, there was this kind of like this this golf clap and like next issue, and so everything that he proposed it was dead in the water. But
0: okay, so he had no support. I mean, the Hamiltonian mindset had no support at the uh, at the convention, at the no, constitutional and, convention. And
7: Hamilton eventually, after Will left, went back to New York, practice That's law, and then kind of came back very, very disgruntled because again, he really just couldn't get anything. You you voted as a state, and so there were two other New Yorkers who were there. If Hamilton was for something. They were going to be against it.
0: So who carried the water for the Jeffersonians
7: right. if Adams nor Jefferson are there? No, it's, it's, it's James Madison, who was correctly referred to as the father of the Constitution. James Madison was a political science nerd. He read all the old republic stuff. I mean, he knew the old republics, Greece and Rome, just a, a master of the science of politics, came to Philadelphia with a plan for a brand new government, and this sort of served as the model. Oh, the starting point. And so Madison, most of the language in the Constitution, he wrote it. He's, of course, the architect of the Bill of Rights. And so the term, the father of the Constitution, correctly applies to James Madison.
0: So if you've got Madison on one end, you've got Hamilton on the other, who moderates? I mean, who, who, who was the—who uh, were, who were the moderates that helped these two causes and sides right. reconcile some of their differences? Yeah,
7: you, you got old, old Benjamin Franklin is sort of a voice— of wisdom in there, sort of a, a compromising guy. It's like, all right, let's let's kind of get together. You're going to give this up. Roger Sherman is the guy who uh, brokers what's called the Great Compromise uh, in Philadelphia very very early on in the convention about how we're going to have a, a two house legislature and the house will be elected directly by the people, and then each of the states will have two members in the Senate, thus preserving the idea of equality. And so again, it's a Connecticut guy, Roger Sherman, uh, who gets a lot of does a lot of the the work as well.
0: If someone wanted to better understand the Constitution, I mean, we're a constitutional form of government. Is there a book? Is there a series? Is there somewhere to go and try to better? I mean, obviously, um, what, 20, about 30% of Americans have a college degree. That means 30% of Americans went through something like you teach yeah. and, and your <laughs> course. But that means 70% didn't. Yes, yeah, sadly. And, and I don't know that many high school sophomores are as interested in the Constitution <laughs> as maybe they, they should be. I mean, I can tell you what I was interested in. And that's football practice, you know, <laughs> gas in the car and wherever we're going yeah. after school. But but in all seriousness, is there a source out there that you trust to better educate someone, if they want to, later in life? Find out how relevant and important the Constitution was.
7: Lots and lots of historians and lots of books out there. Okay, and David Stewart wrote a good—it's called 1787. It's a good popular history. David Stewart? Yeah, 1787. Again, it's not designed for— uh, Intellectual, really. It's just it's more of a just a a tradition. It doesn't use the big fluty, you know, highfalutin words. Again, it's not written for academic. It's written for uh, a general audience. And again, you're not going to take it to the beach, but you can easily get a copy of the Federalist Papers. You know, all 87 of those, they're still very important. They're still cited uh, to this day. And again, that tells you a lot of the inner workings, what uh, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, how they expected and thought the Constitution Would work.
0: How important are the Federalist Papers, in your opinion? Well, the Supreme Court
7: goes back and cites them from time to time. They sort of had a a rebirth, if you will, during the Clinton impeachment. And we're trying to figure out exactly, well, you know, does this muster up to, is this an impeachable offense? And everybody was kind of going back to several of the documents in the Federalist Papers. And so they've they've had sort of a new lease on life. And again, we're always trying to figure out, you know, which way to go. And this is maybe one of the best sources, the best, to try and capture the wisdom, the mindset of our founding fathers. And so and it still resonates to this day. Well said. We'll take a break. Right. We'll be Thank back you. in just a few moments. It sure don't feel like my
0: world at times. Bolt's got won His college team is winning his pro team, not yeah. so much. Um, yeah, Rev and I are excited about Kentucky being a night game because <laughs> right. that means you may not remember the game by, by the time <laughs> oh. it starts at 730, at 730. Or you may choose to just... Make the tailgate an extended tailgate and not go to the game. It's kind go. of interesting. I've told my buddy on the board at USC, and I gotta believe it's similar to this at Clemson. If you had a Saturday with just a football game and no tailgate, and another Saturday with just the tailgate and no football <laughs> game, you may get your feelings hurt <laughs> about what draws the um the larger crowd yeah. in Tennessee. I mean, it's uh, I've gone to to, to Neyland. Oh, I mean, it's know. a uh, we know how it's to do. A, it. Ta- yes. Oh, you better believe it. I mean, it's on the river. I mean, it's as cool as can be, and <laughs> yeah. um, they know how to have a big time and, uh, in uh, Knoxville. If,
7: if you let me, you know, you don't, you don't realize it. Buffalo Bills, Friday afternoon, you take your trailer, your, whatever you got, <laughs> to the park. You tailgate all weekend long. I mean, it's it's an entire weekend affair so i mean even you know kneeling you know if it's 7 30 you know eight o'clock in the morning the grills everybody is going sure. out there it's a, it's an all there but in buffalo, it's it's a
0: whole weekend affair so but, but in buffalo i mean the weather has <laughs> yeah. got to be a big deal doesn't it i what? mean
7: late in the season that t-shirt weather no, no you're used to it by then man you, know, you can't get used to that dr <laughs> what, there's nothing else to do in buffalo there's that's no the way to get used to 20 <laughs>
0: below zero windshield that's, you can't what is the so coldest weird. you can ever remember as, as someone who oh, grew I mean, up in Buffalo,
7: negative, negative. Without it, would get so cold they would have to cancel the schools because you couldn't have the kids out there waiting for the buses. And
0: you've got all this lakefront. So, I mean, this lake effect weather, right? I mean, it's on the the eastern um, side well, of the there, Great Lake. Right
7: now, you're hoping if it's if it's a cold like December in Buffalo, the lake freezes, and so you don't got to worry about the lake effect snow in a January. If it's mild, then it's like, oh, you got to you got to start watching those fronts coming across because then you're going to get dumped with several feet. You know, we had eight feet of snow one one Christmas, and yeah, no, no, no big deal. You just you shovel it out, and then you go. When you, you know, when you when you're driving, when you're making the left turn, coming out of a snowbank, you just go out there and hope that nobody's coming the other way.
0: Will so. you do me one favor? <laughs> I mean, he would be a native New Yorker. Will you do me one favor? We would tell your other fellow New Yorkers that the coast of South Carolina is full. I mean, we, we don't have any more room for any more Yankees. Uh, and not in your case, but in some cases, damn Yankees. Yes. I mean, you wouldn't be a
7: damn Yankee. I'm, I'm the Yankee who came and didn't leave. But when you always ask me, that's why I say I'm from Buffalo. Because if I say I'm from New York, you're going to think I'm from, I'm from New York City. Sure. And certainly, you know, there, there's a rivalry between Buffalo and New York City. Uh, but, you know, kind of, kind of post-9-11, they really took one on the on the chin. And there's a, a, a lot more state pride in New York kind of after that. But as, as long as the Bills beat the Giants and the Jets, all, all's right in the world. But
0: we I – mean, I, I want to stay here a second because we do have a misunderstanding of New York. Yeah. I mean, the biggest city in America is New York City. Yeah. I mean, the biggest media market in America is New York City. The city that never sleeps is New yeah. York City. But New York is a very diverse state. I mean, there are a lot yeah. of dairy well, you, farms you up in for sure. northern rural New Yorkers. I mean, mm-hmm. there are a lot of that. No, in, in, in New York.
7: No, absolutely. Lots of conservative individuals. Uh, the Democrats control the state, so they're able to kind of disproportionate. You know, the, these districts, which have a uh, would have a lot more farmers, and kind of get to the suburbs of Syracuse and Rochester carved out as well. So the Democrats get kind of get extra seats. But no, there is a lot. Lots of it's, it's the, the one of the main air producers of dairy products in the country, and so we we oftentimes forget about that. And Buffalo is eight hours away from New York City. you might as well be the other side of the world. I'm almost closer to South Carolina. Well, I mean, we're, what, 10 hours
0: from New York-ish? Yeah. Yeah, so it's only a couple of hours further from here to New York City than it is from Buffalo no, We, we to New York City. When we
7: drive up to Buffalo, we come in through through northern, northwestern Pennsylvania, and you see the sign, you know, Buffalo and 100 miles, New York City, 440 miles. You know, my wife says, you know, yeah, I'm going to New York, but the wrong part of New York. <laughs> or the right <laughs> part, depending on that's, how you see it. That's my place. She uh-huh. loves the Broadway and the show as well. Both- I get it. I get it.
0: Okay, let's, Um, <laughs> I was ranting about the debt. Yeah. and I asked you earlier problem. about that's, the Constitution and, and what, you know, what one issue or what two or three hypothetical issues our founders would perceive as, hey, we didn't touch on that. We should have done a better job of that. Balanced budget amendment or not.
7: I think if you if you had another constitutional convention today, and I think there'd be support for that across the board. A lot of Democrats would probably say yes. This this needs to be done. You need to get your financial house in order. It, it wasn't on the radar. anybody really thought about that. We know we're going to have a massive, massive debt. That we're going to be we're going to be spending more than we're taking in every year. I mean, so that was just no. There was, there's no there's no need to waste our time on that right now. You shouldn't be shouldn't be. And then they, they knew going in they were going to have a debt, so you're going to make some cuts. You're going to cut where you can uh, and then get the debt paid off. And for only one time in America, Andrew Jackson is the only guy who can say that, my fellow Americans, the debt has been paid in full. And so ever since 1837, uh, the country has had a national debt.
0: What do you make of that? I mean, t- t- take your early American historian hat off for a second and, and your Dr. Will Bolt, dude who lives in America in 2023. <laughs> what, does, does the debt concern you? As much as it concerns no, me, for
7: sure. No, I, I think there's, yeah you know, we we're we're both to the right, and you and you're much more to the right on a lot of issues than I am. I think on the the fiscal lane, we're we're in the same lane on that one. That it's you can't put your head in the sand anymore. Uh, it has to be done. It's it's only going to get where you're going to reach a tipping point where you're we're taking on water as it is right now, right? And it was, we we've we've got to get some of this water off, so we can at kind of level off. And eventually, it's going to get to the point where it's it's beyond repair, and it's it's going to take down the entire country. I worry about it for my for my daughter, uh, and the next generation of Americans. We want to leave them a better, a stronger union, a greater country. And if we don't make some serious changes, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm in my late forties, I know that we have to make changes to Social Security and Medicare. This will certainly affect me, but I'm it has to be done. It's 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 it's, it's an easy, it's a slam dunk decision as far as I'm concerned. These ages need to be adjusted upward, not reduced, not reduced the other way. And, and, and if we don't do something about it, I'm worried about what it could mean. What would the founders have said about the amount of money we spend on our
0: military? I mean, that they were largely, I mean, let's be honest, the first half century of America, we were a bit isolationist. Yeah, no. I mean, that was the mindset of our prominent
7: politicians. No, and the argument was, and even you've had ex-military guys, George Washington, Andrew Jackson. Hamilton had spent some time in them they really just funding them, pouring lots and lots of money into the Defense agency. the War Department as it was called, this wasn't What was the War Department in that period? Well, it, I mean, g-
0: g- give me the <laughs> uh, the uh, g- give me the lecture on the War Department.
7: Well it, it's a very very small. you've got a small army. And the argument was we've talked about Jefferson's idea of gutting the Navy and Jefferson said, well we, we can't compete with the British. Why even try? Let's create what he called it. It's a, a fleet of mosquito gunboats. We're going to put a cannon on a rowboat, and that's going to take on a 50-gun British frigate. And so that, but again, Jefferson, Jefferson hated the Navy. He thought that uh, it catered to the aristocracy. The wealthy guys went into the Navy, and they rose up through the rent. There was no chance for the common guy. Uh, he'd always be sort of stuck below decks. And the Jeffersonian philosophy was, and even Washington is, we don't need a standing army. Each of the states have a militia. And so we're going to stay out of here. And the odds of having to call up and create a state are very, very slim to none. All we needed for is maybe just to protect the frontier, uh, make sure there's no attacks on Native Americans. We're not going to provoke the British up in Canada. And so, again, we're not going to spend lots and lots of money. And it's really not until after you get to after World War II uh, that we realize that, yes, we, we need a large standing army and we've got to appropriately fund it. Was Jeffersonian
0: government more influenced by libertarianism or populism?
7: It's a good question. It's probably a bit of both. I mean, Jefferson himself is the quintessential civil libertarian. And Jefferson also, he knew how to play the game. He didn't like to give the public speeches, but, you know, if needed be, you know, he could kind of get down, maybe put his arm around somebody. In public. Jefferson was much more comfortable with his fellow elites, you know, sort of hashing out these issues over very, very expensive Imported wines from France. Uh, this is how he liked to conduct his business. But isn't
0: that a bit oxymoronic
7: for a <laughs> yeah. populist to be an elitist as as well? Very well, you know, President Trump certainly was never had to worry about where That's his kind of where I was his hitting. meal, his next meal was coming from. Uh, Andrew Jackson, right? A very, very wealthy guy who appealed. Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, the, his fellow elites called him a traitor to his class because FDR's policies were designed not to help out the guys on Wall Street, but the little guy, the forgotten man. The common man. Right, so sometimes, right, there have been these individuals oh. who are very, very secure financially, but who strike a chord and who can empathize oh. with the large majority of the country.
0: We're going to take a break. We'll be back with Dr. Will Bolt. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. doctor Will Bolt, history chair. Francis Marion University is with us. We, we've kept him in safe standing this morning, but he's not, <laughs> not going to get out of here. without. Oh, I mean, no, I mean, at least <laughs> once in the hour. I need to put your job security in jeopardy, <laughs> and, and here's how I'm doing it today. You ready?
2: All right. Let's So let's
0: go. You, you were raised in Buffalo.
7: The great city of Buffalo, New York. Yeah, yeah, you would
0: not be, in my humble opinion, a typical academic. I mean, you've had um, k- kind of a lot of different experiences in your life that have led you <laughs> uh, to where you are today. You're Made at a university dues. that is not flaming liberal. I mean, no, I think no. Francis Marion University would be middle of the road. I mean, I, I do believe, and I think you'll accept. The overwhelming majority of academia is left of center. Yeah. I mean, that's not a big surprise or shock to anybody. Um, but there's a certain fair-mindedness about some liberalism, and I'll accept that yeah. as, a, as an essential part, of the, part of the debate. But I want you to try and opine, if you will, for what has happened in the last couple of weeks. And I'm talking about some of these elite universities, some of these very prestigious yeah. universities, and their public displays of support of not Palestine, but the rather... House. Hamas. Um, what's happening to young people uh-huh. at some of these elite universities to convince them that's the right thing to do, Doctor Ball. Right.
7: If 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 you'd have, if I hadn't seen the news reports, if you just told me this was it, you're a liar. I can't. I, I can't. In, in America, we're growing up. The Israelis, they were they were an ally. We had their back. We would we would support them through thick and thin. And I have read it. It's it's, it's mind boggling. it's it's a bizarre world that we live in where people are. Not just saying, well, we need to have a ceasefire or at least be neutral, but are, are pro, pro Hamas signing letters, doing this in public, uh, not even sort of in the shadows. And a lot of these, some of the students up in Harvard, right, who signed some of the earliest letters are now quickly recanting it uh, because they know they're not going to get a job. Uh, employers, good for them, are saying, well, no, man, we don't want you representing our businesses, our companies. Uh, I know, I I cannot believe it that this is where we are in this world that the. A lot of young people like this are. This is what they're doing. They're going out there and they're protesting a group that committed just terrible, terrible atrocities to innocent civilians who uh, didn't do anything wrong. This isn't a, a horse you want to back. And so it's, yeah, I, I, I still can't believe it. What do you
0: make of the influence, not higher education, but these few universities have in our media yeah. in our government? I mean, it's, um, and I've talked to people at Francis Marin about this and, uh, I don't know, the the, the degree of arrogance yeah. that goes along with some of these uh, elite, yeah. prestigious and universities. Maybe, I
7: guess maybe they think that that's how you get a, a seat at the table. That's how you become a part of the club is if you are so extreme on this issue. That's how the other elites, the other extreme stream liberals are going to take you serious if you're out there protesting and protesting for uh, engaging in a march for Hamas. But uh, I still can't. I'm still, I'm still surprised and shocked that people are actually that this is this, this. I mean, and I, I'm all, I'm all for free speech, but this, this one just seems to be a no-brainer that these, it's, 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 it's right and versus wrong, and that the Israelis certainly have a right, and they nobody should have what was done to them, uh, just be attacked and in, in, in broad daylight coming over there's torturing them, doing unthinkable things to them, and you're out there praising uh, these individuals, but to each their own. Was the Jewish
0: influence in early America minimal?
7: Yeah, for, for the most part. Again, I'm sure there's probably books to be written, but there there were no Jews at the at the Constitutional Convention. Just they did very, They represented a small, small part uh, of the population at this time. It's probably not until the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th century where they start to have some uh, some influence in America. And again, I could be wrong. This is never not on my radar. Sure, and so, but you know, maybe somebody else. Might know, maybe somebody can write a book about it and study it. But again, as far as I know, they just they, they just weren't that many in America well, at the time.
0: So, so, so let's go back half a step. We got about four minutes here. Sure, sure. What let's was sure. the religious consensus, if any, of our founders? A lot of conservatives have been led to believe that they were, you know, divine, and they were, yeah. you know, they they were God inspired. Maybe they were, but they weren't very religious. They were very loosely yeah. religiously affiliated.
7: We we like as a, as a Christian nation now, good. Baptist, we we kind of like to think that oh yeah, the founding fathers were all you know in churches on Sunday morning, and they, and they weren't. They were they were. But I think the the point we need to make though is that they weren't very very pro religion themselves. But they believe that you can do whatever you want. We're not going to tell you uh this is what you have to do. Right? We're not going to tax you to support a church or something that you don't believe in. And again, it goes to that civil li- libertarian streak. Amongst the founding fathers, you do what you do. That's fine by you. I mean, the government's not going to force you or tell you what you want. And again, most of these guys—Washington, uh, Hamilton, jefferson were deists essentially. God was an absentee landlord, a watchmaker who put the world in motion and then took a step back. So he—he he wasn't involved in the day-to-day affairs of the but, people. But
0: but they made certain to allow you to express your religious beliefs yes without fear of consequence. Oh, and and oh, that, that was very important
7: to them. And Jefferson, right? Who is a atheist at best or an agnostic at worst, one of his main accomplishments was the statute for religious freedom in this home state of Virginia, uh, something that he put on his tombstone. Uh, that's how proud he was of that. Again, you can do whatever you want. That's fine. Fine by me. Do you, do you find that
0: odd that people <laughs> that weren't considered very religious made as a priority the right for others to express their, their, their religious beliefs?
7: maybe from twenty thousand feet, it seems kind of awkward. But again, these are guys who were very, very committed to personal freedoms and personal liberties. And I think that's kind of the glue uh, what a lot of them had uh, in common. that again, right? we're not going to be involved. we we're, We just broke away from a king that we thought was in a parliament which is overly involved in our lives. this is this is the response. This is the alternative. And for the most part, I mean, we've had the the creep of government. For the past two hundred years, but by and large, right, Uh we're still, for the most part, able to do again whatever we want without Big Brother coming in there saying, "Uh, uh, uh, you can't do that. that." That's the the great legacy of who, the founding fathers. Who
0: was the most were, who was the most religious founder, and who <laughs> m- made a point of making his religion a part of the
7: discourse? Yeah, my, most of these guys, right, didn't really care, or at least they didn't wear it on their sleeves, and where, of course, nowadays, right, if you're a politician. Uh, you want to be seen walking out of that church on Sunday morning. You know, that's, that, that's good to get some votes. Uh, these guys didn't really care much about that at all. Uh, Andrew Jackson, by many accounts, is our first maybe evangelical president, a good, strong Presbyterian. But again, Jackson never mingled his politics with his religion. And so only those who really got to know Jackson. Jackson wasn't giving public statements about his beliefs in God. It was only in private. And so the people who really knew him at that next level uh, got to know him.
0: This would be a podcast in itself, and does this, this? So Jefferson most believe was a deist.
7: Yeah, again, at at best, yeah. at, at best. I mean, he I, mean, may he, have, I mean, he rewrote the Bible. You know, I mean, You're here. right. You're right. Um,
0: but but he also used the word inalienable. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a debate about sacred or in, right. inalienable. Um, why? I mean, what what about a non religious man? led him to use that word
7: that has been so essential it's, it's, to it's, our existence. No, it's, it's an excellent point. I guess there's so many contradictions and sort of weird things. Is with, that the with most com- contradictory thing Jefferson ever did? <laughs> I, you know, I've said this before with Jefferson. You can use Jefferson on just about every major issue. And Jefferson preserved all of his papers, be it gun rights, abortion, uh, states' rights, whatever. And I've said this, Jefferson would write a letter early in the morning. Taking a position, maybe an outlandish position. He talked to James Madison a couple hours later, and Madison would talk him off the ledge. And then later that day, he'd write a letter to somebody else, completely reversing <laughs> what he had said at nine o'clock. And so you, you never really know what, who's the real, where's the real Jefferson. So he's, he said he's, he's every man's every man. I mean, you could kind of plug him in. He's the utility infielder. Wherever you need Thomas Jefferson, uh, you could use. And I think that's a lot of us kind of feel that, that, that same way that, you know, we're kind of malleable and we can. Uh, We're not sort of fixed, in our opinion. And maybe that's why he's
0: so interesting, confounding. continues to fascinate us, And relatable. I mean, I think we all relate to that that frailty that Jefferson exhibited from time to time. Um, Smartest guy in the room, uh, normally smartest guy in the room, but very complicated and uh, and conflicted.
7: And there's the great story that when John F. Kennedy had dinner at the White House with all these Nobel laureates, and he said, this is the smartest group of people in this room since Thomas Jefferson was here by himself. And we'll end with that. Thank you, sir. Hey, good stuff, guys. Have a good week. We'll take a break back in a few.
0: 843-661-0937. Is it fair to say, Josh, that Steve Miller is the rock and roll star next door? Who? <laughs> right. He sang I that song that going you to just be played. The answer. I mean, I, you, you give <laughs> listen, a guy you, you give a guy 8 minutes of airtime, and he becomes so full of himself. <laughs> I mean, just immediately so full of himself. You should see him prancing around that gym, Rev. Oh, yeah? If like he mi- owns the place? Well, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, yesterday when I saw Josh at the gym, um, and he's rude, by the way. He doesn't speak to anybody.
1: Um, but he had this. Oh, okay. You should hear what he says about you. He had this shirt on.
0: He had this shirt on that said, did you hear me on the radio? <laughs> and I'm like, dude, tone it down a bit, man. I mean, what would happen if he had an hour instead of. Instead of there nine minutes, we wouldn't be able to talk to him. Somebody said yesterday, you'll be you'll be screening calls for Josh before <laughs> long. And I don't know if you heard me under my breath? Like, no, I bet he don't. Uh, <laughs> I heard you <laughs> loud and clear. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm going to the house if we have to do that. But I wish him nothing but the best, and he knows that. So is Steve Miller the rock and roll star next door?
2: Um, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that, but I like him. Okay, good deal. I mean, I would agree.
0: I, I mean, I think he's the rock. Steve Miller could walk into the studio and 75% of the people worked for a community broadcast. Say, who
1: was that out front? Steve Miller. Right. Who was that? But you know, his song. <laughs> yeah, you do know
0: a song. Well, right? well and,
1: and, and, and Josh talked about not knowing. I said, play, hey, let's play a Steve Miller song. And he's like, uh, what's your favorite song? you, Steve, Steve's that song. But when I said, some people call me the space cowboy and you said,
5: <laughs> 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 so he, he knew was, it. So he that's, it. Saying would
0: call you the gangster of love. Yeah. That's, uh, that's my experience or, with music. Or, or, or I know Maurice, songs.
1: Um, Okay, fair enough, fair
0: enough. <laughs> but he's the rock and roll star um, next door.
1: That's right. You are talking about Jefferson before the break. I thought we are talking
0: about Steve Miller. Well, we
1: were. Okay. I think we've kind of, you know, we're done with that. That was a good how, song.
0: How intellectual is the rock and roll song that says, big old jet airliner? I mean, just imagine, you know, Dylan, screw Dylan, Springsteen, get out of my face, McCartney, you got a big old
1: jet airliner. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you have to you have to add in like words like big old to make yeah. it feel you know, feel yeah. the musical. Yeah. Big old
0: jet airliner. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Uh, let, well, what were you gonna say? I'm sorry, let oh, me interrupt.
1: So 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 Jefferson, and you were you were talking about the contradictions or whatever, and he probably struggled with the idea of the supernatural, right? As it relates to religion. You
0: got to believe that somebody, I mean, if, if if you believe that Jefferson didn't give the supernatural some consideration, I just don't think you've ever read or understand him. I mean, I've never obviously met Jefferson. I don't know what made him tick, but I've read a lot about about Jefferson. So it's almost like he played jokes on all of us. You know, he, he said these things and wrote these things and stood for these things and believed in these things and then you read something else and says I can't be the same guy but it was it is yeah Reverend I mean, but, but, but
1: they were granted th- through these documents in the founding of our country they were granting rights to citizens of the country correct and they were who were they granting these rights from they knew they didn't want to grant the rights from a king or a person or a human right so obviously when you talk about the references to god in the in the founding documents i wonder if that's it's that. almost like God won by default with Jefferson. And it's kind of weird. I'm, I'm not I bestowing wondering.
0: rights for humanity from a king or a dictator or a monarch. So there's this God that some people believe in. So let's say God gets to, you know, be in charge of who gets the rights and who doesn't. Look, the, the, the founders have been deemed monolithic and they weren't. I mean, they were very diverse and very different and very um, unorganized in, in a weird kind of way. But the one thing they were pretty consistent on was human rights. I mean, it was the era of enlightenment that had such a profound, <coughs> excuse me, impact on their political and world philosophy and, and humanistic philosophy. So, so I believe that the majority of Jefferson's interpretations of, of religion was, yes, I'm interested in the supernatural. I mean, I'm a smart man. What bright man would not be interested or curious about the supernatural I can't get there. I can't buy into that because I think he always professed to be scientific in nature, and, I mean, to to me, the supernatural kind of forces you to believe something other than science. Is that fair? I mean, the supernatural would be outside of the realms of science. So if you take that leap of faith and say, look, I know science says this. I mean, science says a man can't walk on water, right? But the supernatural world says, yes, he can. Why? Why? because a supernatural world doesn't exist in the realm of, of, of science and gravity and human understanding and physics. And, uh, you know, um, and I think Jefferson probably expressed a degree of curiosity about that, but he never felt that you should squelch anyone's pursuit of what they perceive to be true. And I think that's a hill they all died on. I mean, that's a hill they were all willing to say, no, we're not going to tell people what to believe and what not to believe, where to stand, where not to stand, what to do, what not to do. And that's the k- kind of the confessions of limited government. I mean, that that's where you wanted... I mean, that, in other words, I think they unfairly get deemed conservative and God-fearing and mono. No, they weren't that. I mean, they weren't that at all. They, they were a hodgepodge of a lot of different things. But the one thing that seemed to be consistent was their burning desire to express human individualism and the ability for Dave Baker to chart his own course for Josh and Ken to chart their own course and government not interfere with those pursuits. I mean, that, that was genuinely a, a consistent thread amongst nearly all except Hamilton. I mean, Hamilton deferred to the government and, and he would have been more of a Thomas Hobbes, uh, you know, the, the, the Leviathan. You can't trust man to be on its own because man will, I mean, they'll make a mess of whatever they get in charge of. And Jefferson said, yeah, so they'll clean it up, or they won't. They'll live with the consequences of those good or bad um, decisions. But, yeah, to your point, I think there's no question. I mean, I, I, would, I would argue that Jefferson was probably infatuated with the supernatural. I mean, to be as bright and curious as he obviously was and not be inspired by trying to understand the supernatural would, would uh, almost be impossible. And, and once again, we're forming opinions from afar, but that's, um, and, and it goes back to what, what you said, we're not going to let a King dictate. We're not going to let a monarch. We're not going to let some dictatorial force, um, about this God thing that some people believe in, let's let him be in charge of who has rights
1: and who does not. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning. Hey, good
3: morning. Steve Miller. How about that? Abracadabra. I want to reach out and grab you. Uh, that sounds like a politician there. Hey, just remind uh, Josh, his eight minutes, uh, that was because Ken had the back way to Conway, rolling down Highway 41. Um, Hello? Hey, Are you there? Ken, Kim, I still here?
1: Yep, you dropped off, but
3: I dropped Continue. Off. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, okay. The, where, where, where did we stop at? And I was talking about abracadabra with Steve Miller, uh, I was thinking Josh is eight minutes, and he went that back way to Conway. Uh, you're rolling down 41, I guess. I don't know. You go through about four counties. Uh, that's where the old swamp box used to hang out. Uh, but think about, you get to Myrtle Beach, and back in the day, you had people there from North Carolina. It was a regional beach, uh, Kentucky, Virginia. And I was thinking about this Kentucky election, and I'll go back uh, to Trump back in 2020. Um, There's 120 counties in Kentucky. Uh, Donald Trump won all but two. And I'll go back to 2019, this Andy Beshear, when he won, he actually won 23 counties. So you see he had some sort of appeal to some of the little smaller counties. Now. The Trump counties that were lost were um, Lexington and where Louisville is, so that shows you the appeal uh, of the big, bigger towns uh, to the Democrats. But Bashir, he's got some appeal in the smaller counties, so that's going to be interesting. And you guys, you did, you, have you followed the Mississippi governor's race?
0: I have. You got Elvis Presley's cousin versus the guy that got in trouble with Brett Favre. Or may have a. I mean, I thought of those two ancillary personalities. Uh, the governor of uh, Mississippi is running for reelection, and he's the guy that cut the deal with Brett Favre. And then you've got Elvis Presley's what cousin running he's as got a Democrat? Cousin,
3: yeah. His name's Brandon Presley. Man, I want to get into that just for a second, man, because you guys remember that whole. And you can look online, they're talking about what did Elvis his politics and this and that. I'm sure you, when he wrote that letter to uh, Richard Nixon, he wasn't no Beatles fan, uh, and that is one of those just funny stories but a lot of it is just myth uh but did he did uh he showed up at the white house he gave the richard nixon a, a colt 45 and a display case and that's funny you think about all the secret service and all the security that you have a man's gonna show up but only elvis could do that but there's a lady named joyce bova he really went to see her that was one of his i guess friends whatever you want to call it but uh he went to see her. She worked in Washington, D.C., and you always see these movies. They talk about the old Amy Joy donut shop where he went into the donut shop. He didn't really go into the donut shop. Uh, he had somebody going there for him, but he was out in the parking lot. And it, it was it, – I, I could imagine that whole night. But uh, this is going to be interesting. I'm looking at this Kentucky because this Bashir guy, he really does have some, some appeal in the rural areas and – Trump has gotten so many crossover small-town Democrats to vote for him, and that's where I might be a little bit concerned about Nikki Haley. She probably could do better in some of these collar counties, but can she pick up the uh, small-town
0: Democrats that's crossed over to Donald Trump? So you guys have a good day, man. Appreciate talking to you. Thank you, David. I'll tell you what, Nikki, better be careful about I mean, she's not going to be the nominee. Donald Trump's going to be the nominee. I mean we have all these excursions into the hypothetical and it's fun we did a lot of that with Dr. Bolt but the, the problem it still goes back to Trump I mean if, if Trump's not the nominee how many Trump voters stay home and if Trump's not the nominee how many Republican voters vote for RFK Jr. I mean it's it's interesting to play these games out and I mean I I, I had about 6 or 8 people send me the text yesterday about Haley's numbers juxtaposed to Trump, and she gives us the best chance to win. And I felt like saying, but she's not one of us. I mean, she may be one of you, but she's not one of us. Well, what does that mean? I'm an America first Republican. There's still a strain. I'll I'll easily admit that the America first Republican takeover is not over. I mean, it's not done. It's not finished. It's not complete. There's still a large force in the GOP that believes in globalism and interventionism and um, you know, I, I guess being complicit in the human rights violations in China by allowing them to be our, you know, world's manufacturing plant. So, so I'm not arguing that you know Trump gets elected in 16, it's over. I mean, the, you know, the mission accomplished banner that uh, George W. Bush had. I'm not doing that again. Um, I mean, it's there's still a battle for this party, but but you know, there there's no question the majority of GOP primary voters today ascribe to the, the notions of America first. And if you're one of them, Nikki Haley's running as a kind of an establishment-oriented Republican, far more complicit in the military-industrial complex. Um, I mean, to me, it gives kind of giggly answers. I mean, that, you know, I, I'm sorry I, I don't take very seriously when someone says, oh, we'll just move Disney to South Carolina. I mean, if Florida doesn't like Disney, I mean, that's that, that yeah. just... That's, uh, that's, anyway, silliness. that's silliness. I mean, that's what it is. It's, it's silliness, and, you know, it appeals to some uh, number of voters. But, no, I mean, if, if, if Nikki Haley is the nominee, the Trump voter stays home to some degree, and some of the Trump voters who do go vote have a protest vote of RFK Jr. because they feel like he's one of us more than the GOP nominee is. The asymmetrical relationship between the donor class of the GOP and the rank-and-file voter. It's not a misalignment. Trust me, it's asymmetrical. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Mike in
1: Darlington. Good morning. You're on the air.
8: Hey there. I, I wanted to go back to the Jefferson uh, conversation because I find that very interesting. It's obvious that uh, Jefferson was a very skilled uh, literary sophist. He could argue both sides of an argument at, at any time, but and uh, choose the winner at his discretion. But uh, I I th- I think it's incredible the world that he existed in, and came to came to be in such a prominent position in, was ruled by uh, either. God's representative on earth are divinely appointed monarchs, and in Great Britain itself, the monarch is the head of the church also. So uh, when he put that inalienable rights as an integral part of, uh, of uh, humanity, that was uh, – he, he put the common man on the level with the king in effect. And I thought that was an incredible uh, way to put it and to make sure that, that everyone understood that uh, people had rights and uh, not just privileges granted by the king, but they were inalienable rights. They were part of your identity. And, uh, but uh, on, on the Haley issue, I feel that uh I wonder in your opinion Ken and you would know more about this than I would um how would uh how would Haley, Haley is she trying to get a slot as vice president and could Trump tolerate her or um would she even consider it I mean what is she really trying to do here
0: Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. A um, couple of things. I'll, I'll hit the last first. Uh, I mean, as a as a supporter of the America First agenda, I don't trust Nikki any further than I can throw her to advance that agenda. I think Nikki from the get go has tried to have it both ways. Robert Kahaley and I've talked a little bit, and I understand it. I mean, if I'm playing that hand, she's playing. I got to figure out a way to remain profitable. <laughs> in my political endeavors and by that i mean i got to stay in good graces with the consulting and lobbying class because um, i'm not independently wealthy i mean i don't want nikki's financial situation is today i'm sure it's much better today than it was but i mean nikki doesn't come from money nikki's not a kennedy or a a dupont or a rockefeller she doesn't have the luxury of uh you know just saying whatever she chooses to say without fear of consequence or repercussions she's got to play that game uh to some degree uh you know she's obviously doing better Than she did because she lives on Kiowa and you don't live on Kiowa. If you're broke, busted, disgusted, um, you gotta be, have done fairly well in recent time. Um, but, but I think Nikki, I mean, if Nikki had to make a choice and I'm speculating here, um, I mean, I knew Nikki in 2010, I don't know Nikki today. I mean, Nikki and I've talked a handful of times since 2010. Uh, she got elected governor. When I got elected Lieutenant governor, I spent a good bit of time with her, uh, during that period of time, leading up to the election, and shortly after the election, we, you know, we got along fine. Um, I don't know that we ever saw the world the same way because I didn't look at political ambition as my priority. I mean, I was ambitious. You kind of got you to be ambitious, but it was not what motivated me every second of every day. Um, it does hurt. And I'm not saying, I mean, she's not the only one. I mean, there are a lot of people making decisions on what their political future holds and how do I better position myself. But But I think the mistake Nikki made is trying to have it both ways and by that I mean being loyal to Trump means being loyal to America first, but but also having my eye on the Boeing board or the, the Raytheon board or giving speeches at certain you know organizations that require you to be more subservient to the nature of historic and legacy politics and I just I never understood how she could do that. I mean she's talented. I mean there's no doubt about it and she's very ambitious. There's no doubt about that. But in today's Republican Party, to me, you've got to choose one side or the other. In the weirdest way, it's why I respect Romney. I mean, I disagree with about everything that comes out of his mouth in relation to my party. I'm not disagreeing with Romney when he says, I mean, Mitt Romney is still a voice of conservatism. He's just not a voice for America First. And I think America First is at times conservative. At times, it's not very conservative. But Mitt Romney said this populism, this rage, this impulse is irrational, and impractical, leads to worse governance, leads to a bad, you know, a bad place for the party in the long run, and, and I respect that. I mean, I, I, I hope he's wrong. I disagree with his premise, but I respect the fact that Romney says those things publicly. Nikki tries to be a little Romney. Uh, what was the Barbara Mandrell, a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll. Um, and I think in today's <laughs> Might world, have been the Osmonds, well, the Osmonds, yeah, you're right. I'm thinking about, I was country when country would cool, <laughs> go is, is, is what I'm thinking about. But you know, once again, I respect what Romney has said. Uh, I don't respect the way he ran, the, his president, uh, the bid for president. I don't respect the fact that he's been insulting toward America first. He, he acts like it's, it's a little bit beneath the dignity of politics, um, the The phrase I've coined, and I think it's pretty accurate, you know if if you're bothered by Trump and and I get it. I mean, I understand he's making a mockery of the mockery. I think that's the best way to say it. He's making a mockery of the already existing mockery. Trump didn't screw up politics for anybody. Politics was screwed up to begin with. I mean, he's just exacerbated the mockery that is, politics. So in one corner, you got the mockery that is Donald Trump. In the other corner, you've got the honest and integrity-filled American government. Really? I mean, do you buy that? No. The mockery of the American government has met, and I'm talking about the Trump detractors. I don't think Trump's a mockery. I mean, I think at times it gets a bit out of bounds and, and colors with too bold a color too far out of the lines. But but to suggest that, and it goes back, and I've said this before, and, and Ralph kind of gives me some credit here. If you believe we're protecting something from Trump, what is that? I mean, is it the virtue of government? This ain't 1776. I mean, this is 2023, and we have an incredibly bought and sold federal government. I mean, it was sold to the highest bidder, and the American working class weren't the highest bidder, and they've taken it on the chin since the government decided to pick winners and losers. It goes back to what we talked about earlier this morning. Guess who wins? Those who bid the highest, guess who loses? Those who don't. I mean, that's become the nature of, of our government. So, so if you've got, for argument's sake, let's say Trump is a mockery. And in one corner, you've got the mockery Donald Trump. In the other corner, you, you've got the equal mockery. So, so, so once again, and, and I've never had a never Trumper be able to explain this. They can easily explain why they don't vote for Trump. But then when I say, okay, I get it. He's too narcissistic, he's too bombastic, he's too full of himself, he's too dishonest, he's too loud and proud, and I, I get all that. I don't disagree with that. But, but what are we protecting from Donald Trump? I mean, does, does government have integrity and virtue and ethic and moral? Because if it does, then I'm on your team. I mean, if Donald Trump is unethical, immoral, a danger and threat to the virtue and integrity of government, let's by all means stop him but let's look behind that door and let's see how virtuous our government is, how ethical our government is, how moral our government is. Really? You think the guy in this corner is worse than everybody in
4: that corner?
1: That's absurd. Let's go to the phone. Nick in Lexington. Good morning. You're on. Uh, uh what,
4: what spurred me to call is I've been thinking about the vice president for a little bit. I would think this this time,
3: um, It's more advantageous to be a vice presidential candidate because of the lame duck status. Is it not more desirable to be at this time?
0: Of course. You got a one-term guy.
3: You know, and and Trump really doesn't need uh, a certain candidate to win, you know, like these regional selections and things like that. Who do you
5: think? would
0: be a good selection for him. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, to me, the, the first check of the box, and, and I've never been, you know, candidate by central casting. I've, I've just never bought into that. Um, but to me, when I look at the polling and I try to analyze the data, that there are places Trump struggles that he's going to struggle. There are places Trump overperforms that he's going to overperform. The white working class, he's going to overperform there. The place that he struggles that I think he can make some headway is female voters. That's why I've argued that if anybody has Trump's best interests at heart and they give him a list of five or six to consider, four have to be female. I mean, I'm normally, I mean, I'm serious. I'm normally the guy that says, no, I'll find the best qualified. I mean, find somebody in a swing state that, that is best and most qualified. In this particular case, when I look at the data and try to understand the data, he needs help with female voters. Now, he doesn't need as much help as he did because when you look at Biden and you got dead inflation, crime, border, foreign policy, homelessness, I mean, all of that is up. All of that is up. And I think you've got to think about running against somebody other than Biden. I think there's a better chance that Trump runs against somebody not named Biden than, than does. One of the key things that happened yesterday is David Axelrod. I mean, I've talked a lot about Obama lately. Axelrod used a word. And, and sometimes I get into these places where I think I know more than everybody else knows, Axelrod said it would be, you ready? It would be wise for Joe Biden to step down. That's an interesting choice of word for me. I mean, that's Obama hmm. saying it. I mean, if Axelrod says it, that's Obama saying it. I mean, Obama doesn't say it would be wise for Joe to consider stepping down so he gets Axelrod, but, I mean, that's one of the same. I mean, that, that's, that's USC and US of C. I mean, there's no difference, or U of SC. I mean, there's no difference that there may be a little different brand or image on the T shirt, but they're exactly the same. And the word wise, I mean, that, that, that's a shot across the bow to the Obama team. Um, it's not. The Biden team. Well, I don't mean, the Biden team. I'm sorry. Yeah, it would be wise to get out. Marsha Blackburn is somebody that I think makes sense. Um, she's a female. She's yeah, not a threatening sort of female. Um, I mean, I said something a few weeks ago that would be provocative and may get me in trouble under normal circumstances. Christy Noem is too ah catching. Hmm. I think that you got to be careful there. Got to consider that. Well, I mean, you, you do. I mean, you, uh, women. <laughs> I'm telling you, women don't vote for other women who think they're all that. And if Christy Noem shows up in a shirtless—or excuse me, shirtless—if she shows up in a um, in a, in a, in a sleeve, that's not Matthew well, McConaughey. If she it. shows up in a sleeveless shirt, women are going to go, "Okay, and she does CrossFit." Hmm. Bitch. Um, I mean, I'm just man, Seriously, women are wired different than men. To believe yeah, otherwise yeah. is naive. I mean, it's buffoonish to believe that women are motivated. Now, women are going to give Trump more the benefit of the doubt. Why? Crime. Neighborhoods don't feel as safe. Homelessness is pervasive today more than when Trump was in the White House. And Biden's going to get blamed for a lot of this. So, so you've got moms in suburbia that are going, hey, I don't like that guy, but I felt safer. It seems like the economy was a little more functioning or functioning a little more normal um, I mean, I'm not trying to say every woman thinks that, nor does every man think that, but, but if I'm Trump and I'm trying to find a VP, it's going to be a female and she's not going to be, I mean, you can't, there's no way, Nikki, I mean, you'd forget that. I mean, as much as Trump wants to win and as much as she may add some benefit to the ticket, I don't think America firsters would tolerate that because she becomes the heir apparent. Re- remember the Reagan revolution, and the handoff from Reagan to George H. W. Bush, and a lot of the um, a lot of the Revo- Reagan revolutionaries were were you know they kind of saw the writing on the wall. This guy's not uh, a conservative. This guy's more of a country club Republican. Danny is a revolutionary movement oriented conservative. And I think when you I mean there could be something similar there to Nick's point. The only thing about electing Trump this time, when you elect Reagan. In, in 80, you, you felt pretty confident you could have him for four years and you could entrench some philosophy into our government. I mean, if Trump's there four years, somebody's running for president halfway into his term. And I think Nikki Haley has just lost legitimacy and credibility with the America First wing of the Republican Party. So you got to find somebody who's loyal to America First. You've you got to find somebody who's either not interested at all in being president or is the heir apparent? I mean, there can't be this question. Marsha Blackburn would not be interested at all in being president. So she's kind of the VP that when he rides off into the sunset in 2028, she rides off uh, with him. That would be my critique. I mean, that's the way I see it. But, but nobody in the Trump orbit has asked me what my opinion is. Nick did, and I'm flattered. That's kind of the way, <laughs> the, the way I see it. Take a break. Back in a few. 843 is our number. Last segment of this Tuesday
1: morning. Let me ask you this. Okay. All right, since we're speculating, talking about presidential running mates and stuff. Okay, if you could, if you could pick who Trump would pick for his running mate, who would you pick and why? Well, I mean, to, to me, but, but it's
0: not the best choice. My personal choice would be J.D. Vance because I think J.D. Vance is someone who could— I mean, we talked a lot about Jefferson and Adams. I think Vance has those characteristics. Mm-hmm. He's a thinker. Um, he comes from somewhere that I can relate to. But I'm being personal. I mean, I've been very selfish here for a second. I don't think he's the best choice. And, and, and I think it, there's a couple of reasons why I don't think he's the best choice. I think Trump has to have a female. And I think J.D. Vance could rise in significance in the Senate. I think Vance could be the, the, the Republican opinion leader of the Senate and reflect the view of the body. And in other words, J.D. Vance as a vice president or J.D. Vance taking Mitch McConnell's place. I would much rather J.D. Like Vance that. take Mitch McConnell's place. And we're making some gains, guys. I mean, I told you this was a long, enduring process. We're making some gains. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, changing out the speaker was, uh, you know, I, you don't know. I mean, there's not enough water under that bridge yet to say good move, bad move. I don't like the fact that we did it the way we did it, motion to vacate. Um, but I think we've got a more America first speaker than Kevin McCarthy uh, is or was. Um, somebody texted me a second ago when I was going to get to this. The one thing you could do, um, Nick, is find a woman outside of the body politic and convince Americans, women, that this lady could be the next president of the United States, hence the first female president of the United States that gets us playing identity politics. And we don't do that as well as the Democrats do. But, um, I mean, Pamela Vett was with us a couple of weeks back. She's outside of the body politic. I mean, she was not an elected official. She will probably be a legitimate candidate for governor of South Carolina. I don't know who that is. I mean, there's a female running a fortune 200 company somewhere who's decorated in the military. I mean, I don't know who that is and i'm not talking about artificial intelligence i mean i'm sure that there are a, a, that there is a woman out there somewhere that would be unbelievably impressive but has never served in elected office and you go pluck that lady from the business world and she's decorated i'm thinking about i read something a few weeks back about this lady running this business was the youngest lady to ever you know um, land uh, f16 on an aircraft carrier you know some of that sort of accomplishment full of um full of um uh, fire and you know go get it sort of attitude that that person how many are there out there? I don't know um but there 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 are a handful of females out there that fit that bill and criteria, and you could sell them and sell America on i mean obviously I can't be here but four years, but this lady is going to be in 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 the, in the most practical sense <coughs> excuse me. It doesn't matter who Trump picks. It's about Trump. I mean, it's a lot of fun to speculate about VP candidates and what they add, what they don't bring. Um, I mean, I think J.D. Vance makes Ohio more winnable. I think, you know, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of somebody in Georgia. I've said this before. I think Brian Kemp makes Georgia more winnable. There's kind of a local flavor there. But Trump, I mean, Trump probably more than any other presidential candidate you're voting for the guy. You're not voting for the ticket. You're voting for Trump or you're voting against Trump. And and I think mean the one thing that America fails to understand outside of the Trump orbit, and I'm talking about, I mean, I, I would argue the three of us are America first Republicans. If you made us answer secretly, do you like Donald Trump or not? I mean, it'd take us longer to answer that question. I mean, it really would. I mean, we don't know him, so we're forming an opinion from afar, but none of us know I mean, I don't know Springsteen. I like his music. Rev doesn't know McCartney. He likes his music. I mean, I think I have a feel for what sort of dude Springsteen is. you got a feel, but nobody knows anything about a guy you don't know, never met, never been. I mean, I've been in a room with Trump, but we didn't sit down and talk about, you know, morals and priorities and, and, and a way of life. But he impressed you as? Well, I mean, he was a normal dude outside of that. I've told people before, I mean, having a cup of coffee with Donald Trump And in an intimate setting of 20 people, probably 20 people in the room when I met with him, I mean, it was very different than when those double doors flung open and the wrestling match began. I mean, it was, I mean, it was from competent, measured, um, kind and decent to Ric Flair. And, you know, and I don't know how long it was, but it was, there was only a swinging door that I remembered. Is that the same guy that we sat down with for 15 minutes prior to the, um, to the event? Uh, when, when he kind of turned it into, a, you know, one of these full-fledged wrestling matches. But, but, but the, the one thing that most Americans, and they don't try to understand this, and maybe it's the, it's the beauty in Trump. What percentage of Trump diehard voters don't really like Donald Trump? I mean, the commitment to a cause, and we tried to touch on that a bit this morning, the burning desire that some Americans have to change things. Well, what does that mean? I don't know exactly. I just don't like what it is. I, I, I despise the way it is today. I resent the way it is. We talk about greed and fear. Well, don't underestimate resentment. I mean, I, I'll agree that resentment is not as strong an emotion as greed or fear. I mean, I've read a lot about it. people acting greed or people acting in fear. They get irrational. Resentment is a very powerful emotion and the majority of populism in America today is driven by a resentment that people have about its government. The belief that it's kind of taken care of certain classes and certain entities and agencies and, and at the expense of others. And I think, you know, the resentment of government is a bigger driver than an adoration for Trump. So, so if the three of us had to go on the record, are you an America first or, or not? It'd take one second. To put yes on a sheet of paper. If Josh and Rev and I were asked off the record, in confidence, do you like Donald Trump or not? We'd, we'd probably, mm. what's that thumb under the chin? <laughs> mm. Well, uh, his three kids are good kids and they seem to have their heads screwed on straight. Um, he's run a big business. I mean, you see where I'm headed. I mean, there, there would be some degree of contemplation. That some process we'd have to go through before we were admitting whether we like Trump or not. I like what he's doing no, let me back up. I love what he's doing to the body politic. I mean I more 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 is better for me but but if you think about Trump the man it, it's it's a more complicated story he, he's a um I mean he's a political blunt instrument he's a political anomaly I think he's a unicorn. And I think the, um, the fact that right now as we sit, he's the odds-on favorite to win the U.S. presidency makes him even more of a unit. How do you do that? I mean, I remember when he started, Kahaley and I were talking one day, and I said, Robert, is he really talking about running again? And Robert said, oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's no doubt. Robert, he can't do that. You can't run and win, run and lose, however controversial it may have been, and run again. I mean, nobody does that. Huh? We'll see. I mean, there's no doubt he's running again. Can he win again? I mean, the fact that he's running again is almost incomprehensible for modern politics. The fact that he's got a pretty decent chance to win again makes it even more. (laughs) Uh, It makes our business good. I promise you that. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.